You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Black babies cost less. Angelina Jolie is under fire for some recent casting decisions on her upcoming Netflix movie. She spoke to Vanity Fair and... A lot of the interview was innocuous, but there was something that is really catching some flair online. Her made-for-Netflix film, First They Killed My Father, tells the story of life under the regime of Cambodian dictator Pol Pot. According to the article, Jolie looked in orphanages, circuses, and slum schools for children who had experienced hardship to audition for the role of Luan Ung, from whose memoir the film is adapted. And now when they were looking to cast this leading role, they set up a game. What sort of a game? Let me tell you. Set up a game disturbing in its realism. They put money on the table and asked the child to think of something she needed the money for and then for the child to snatch it away. The director would pretend to catch the child and the child would have to come up with a lie. Stray Mach, the girl ultimately chosen for the part, was the only child that stared at the money for a very, very long time. When she was forced to give it back, she became overwhelmed with emotion. All these different things came flooding back. When she was asked later what the money was for, she said her grandfather had died and they didn't have enough money for a nice funeral. Now, a, a question that we're, I'm still trying to find the answer to is if with all the other kids that they tested, did they let them keep the money? Exactly what went down? I haven't been able to find definitive answers to that question. Either way, I think this is pretty cruel. Do you guys agree? If, uh, is this I'm, just what casting directors do? I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. It's like this hunger, the Hunger Games Hollywood edition. Um, I this is what I talk about this in my stand up, and a lot of people get really upset with me because people are always lauding her for her being a, a humanitarian. Even on Twitter, mm -hmm. if you look at the response to this, people are like, "Are you kidding me?" There is this disease sometimes that li the liberal thinking has that they're rescuing and saving, you know, the, those of us that are people of color. There is a 
children of color have become like novelties, like handbags and, and designer dogs in Hollywood. Like everyone has one. It's like this thing. And I'm not saying that everyone is like that. And those people whose intentions are in the right place. But when there's always a camera and you so, so I, I, I this is appalling. This mm -hmm. is, you know how hard it, think about your own traumas as a child, how they stay with you forever. They shape your self-esteem. You, they, things that happen to you when you're a young kid, these kids are under even worse circumstances, and we are snatching money. I mean, I don't even know how we. this is up for discussion in terms of is this right or wrong. This is ridiculous, and this is part of that thinking that we're going to go rescue the people of color. Like, th this is, we're saving the, the little children. This white privilege mentality that is so disgusting that sometimes conservatives take an aim at. And, and it's, no, this is fucked freaking wrong. It's wrong. I'm sorry. It just made me so angry. When I read this, I had to read it over and over again. I'm like, she, I can't believe this came out of her mouth. And people were like, don't attack her. Attack the producers and the casting. Attack everybody. Anybody <laughs> who saw this and said that this was okay should be in trouble. It does make me think there, there must have been another way to elicit the sort of emotional response to see if a child could go there for the purposes of acting. Because that's the thing, child actors, it's especially when they're so young, it's really hard to explain that you're acting. You sort of just have to say that you're playing make-believe. Casting can be difficult. And we've seen that in the casting of uh, tons and tons of child actors in the past. This game seems incredibly short-sighted in, in yeah in, and insensitive given the demographic that they were targeting for this role there must have been another way and for someone else for someone not to have stepped in and been like hey how about not money and how about we just consider exactly who we're targeting and how we target these kids for this role go get actors and it's like that marlon brando story when they they tried to they did not tell that woman that he was going to take it to the next level with the yeah. sexual assault so that to see what her reaction would be in the film this is that that's cruel it's just cruel this is yeah. uh, uh, go ahead james but I can't uh, well, on the other hand though next time they have to do a casting call uh based on traumatic incidents the kids will be prepared <laughs> Because <laughs> mm -hmm. they'll have had this one. You know, this, it's a super interesting point you make, uh, Ida, about the kids and Hollywood kind of using them as props in, in the words that you, you know you used. Now, I, I got more mixed feelings about that. And of course, there's people who do adoptions in all different places that mean really, really well. I know a couple that just adopted from Latin America, and that's because mm -hmm. the wife was adopted from Latin America. Right. So great, well-meaning people who do that all the time. Yeah. And, and still, Angelina Jolie is raising... African American kids, mm -hmm. you know, Asian kids, and she's spending her whole life with them. Yeah. So it's that's a tough question. This one is not a tough question. No. No, you can't play around with kids and go, but hey, but we did hire one of them. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not questioning her motives because I think she loves her children. I just wish she put some lotion on the darker ones, but uh, because they're ashy, and that's not cool, Angelina. But I, I think that this, you know, this is really. I agree with you, and I think. I think we shouldn't even have these types of discussions. Our humanity should evolve to the place where stuff like this should be preposterous. It's like, mm. how it, how in any, you know, and, and now the girl who got the, the job, like, okay, you won. What about everybody else? They're all going to be scarred. Yeah, where's the, where is the oversight yeah. when it comes to production? And what are you, are you valuing, ooh, like the, the emotional response you can get from this kid on camera? Or are you, we also have to value these kids 
who are from Cambodia, from, you know, uh, hard lives, yep. how they're going to internalize so the that. Kids were what, are my, you, what are you prioritizing? Some of the kids were from a Cambodian circus. They're not, they don't have easy lives. And look, if you're sitting at home going, what's the big deal, man? I wouldn't have been traumatized by that. Yes, but you're not a kid in a Cambodian circus. So you're yeah. not however old these young, young kids were, right? And maybe some of them are traumatized, but don't take that chance. Mm -hmm. So how's the college responding to this incident? We're having a, um, a race forum. And what's that? A forum on race. So we can discuss the incident and the surrounding issues of race. So the usual lip service. Uh, no comment. Even before they buy their first books, settle into dorms, and eat their first meal in the cafeteria, Black students learn that acts of racism on the campuses will often be dismissed as a series of disconnected incidents outside the collective responsibility of the school. In his book called Black Ball, The Black and White Politics of Race on America's Campuses, Lawrence Ross examines the history of segregation in fraternities and sororities, anti-affirmative action measures like California's Proposition 209, and how black students are affected by racism on campus till this very day. It's published by St. Martin's Press. I'm very pleased it has brought Lawrence Ross to our show. Welcome. Th thank you so much for bringing me here. Did writing your previous book, The Divine Nine, The History of African-American Fraternities and Sororities, lead directly to this one? Actually, you're, you're absolutely correct. It did. Um, I've been lecturing on college campuses about African-American fraternities and sororities for like the past 15, 16 years. And one of the things I found was that African-American and Latino students in particular would come up after the lecture and talk about the fact, that, you know, kind of almost in a conspiratorial whisper, talk about the fact, and we're not really enjoying it here. And they would, they would talk about like little incidents that would kind of go under the radar. And so from there, that was kind of like, the, let me dig a little deeper to see if this is just an anecdotal millennial issue or whether or not it was something a little bit deeper. Well, this goes beyond whether uh, blacks and, and Latinos are excluded from certain fraternities. One of the first fraternities you talk about is Sigma Alpha Epsilon. Uh, and uh, you talk about Parker Rice and Levi Pettit. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the incident that they were involved so in? So this was an incident in March of 2015, and they were caught on camera. They were on what, what they called a party bus. It was just, you know, your typical type of, you know, we're all going to be drinking and we're all comfortable with each other. And uh, But someone had a phone uh, uh, pointed at one of them. They were singing a song that went, and I'm going to edit it for for your listeners. I appreciate it. No worries. It was called, uh, you know, they, they sang, uh, there will never be an N-word SAE. Mm -hmm. And they can hang him from a tree, but he'll never sign with me. There will never be an inward SAE. And so what happened is it, it went viral. It went viral. And so I always joke that even Fox, Fox News set up and said, hey, this might actually might be racist. And so by the time it went around, people were shocked that it happened. But it was also kind of really uh, it, it really illustrated how people deal with racism. But uh, he, he, they didn't invent that song. Where no, they, they, they didn't. And in fact, I was out here in, in, in New York um, for a debate about three months ago. And uh, this man came up to me and said, hey, you know something? I'm, you know, he was like, I'm Jewish. And they used to sing a song about Jews in the 1970s. Um, but this is not exclusive to Sigma Alpha Epsilon. Uh, this is sort of a, a just a kind of like a, I always say racism is the cancer. And this is just a tumor that pops up from it. Uh, you see this in um, uh, multiple fraternities over their, over their lifetime. How did David Byrne, president of the Oklahoma 
uh, was it University, University of Oklahoma, Oklahoma yeah. react to the SAE party bus story? Now, he actually reacted in a way that a lot of university presidents don't. He acted with swiftness, uh, basically saying, you know, we're going to kick you off campus. Um, we're going to strip your, your house uh, from being on campus. And when they asked whether or not they were, he demanded they all move from uh, from their campus uh, housing. And, and then he said, well, basically, you know, someone asked, well, will you help them, you know, come off? And he was like, we don't help bigots come off, you know, come, you know, move and everything like that. But what typically has happened is that universities don't react that way. Uh, they typically look at uh, racism as being kind of like an aberration. Well, uh, boys or, will be boys. Boys will be boys, but it's kind of a larger general society type of attitude in terms of saying, well, racism is something kind of a moralistic type of uh, a thing that only happens to bad people. Uh, and so if we have this one or two bad people uh, on, on campus, then let's exercise those people instead of looking at whether or not it's systemic or institutional. Um, because what happens if you look long, you know, longitudinally over, you know, for most of these campuses and you look, you know, over the width and breadth of these campuses, this has been, this is, these, you know, the racist incidents are as common as cheerleaders on a college football side, the sideline. You, you have to stop looking myopically and thinking that each individual incident is an isolated incident. What is OU Unheard and how did they learn about it? Now, OU Unheard, I, I love them because they'd actually met with the university two months prior to the SAE incident on the campus. And they had said to the university, University, well, you know something, we don't sound like, you know, we don't feel that as black students that we are heard by the university. We don't feel, you know, we have diversity on campus, but not inclusion, which is, you know, which is very different. And so, of course, the university is kind of the performer. Well, you know, we'll get back to you. We'll come out. We'll have, you know, like a little paper about it and we'll, you know, have some more discussions. But when March, when uh, the, the two men start singing that song, well, then suddenly everything kind of rose to the top. But often black athletes are the stars of the school's teams and those and teams like uh, University of Oklahoma, uh, they rely a lot on the monies that those teams bring in. So how does that work? Oh, it's definite. I mean, at University of Oklahoma, you know, football is king. And so you kind of have to tie the reaction in terms of the swift reaction from the president to the idea that, hey, the University of Oklahoma can't risk, you know, the African-American students who are on the University of Oklahoma team protesting along with the OU and her students. But typically what happens on on these college campuses is that there's a disconnect between the African-American athletes and the African-American regular student on campus. So the, the African-American athlete is really segregated from the rest of the campus, which makes them almost in terms of uh, how the other students look at them as kind of like mercy. The, t- the teams often live together. Yeah, the teams the live team together. Teams they live off campus. They're they're literally only on campus to to perform. Um, if they get a degree, oh, that's fantastic. But if they don't get a degree, well, we at least we you know we're paying for the big donations that come in uh, from the happy alums. Are most society most fraternities and sororities racially segregated? Because there are all black fraternities and sororities as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think we have to make the distinction. Um, the, the there are this, the, the fraternities and sororities are separated typically by um, by race in terms of there are African American fraternities and sororities predominantly African American uh, fraternities and sororities even the predominantly white fraternities and sororities have black and Latino and, and and Asian members in it but the history of exclusion versus inclusion is completely different so when we're talking about you know predominantly white fraternities and sororities we're talking about organizations that typically about ninety percent of them had uh, restrictive clauses. 
uh, saying that you could only be a Caucasian, and at the one point in time, before it be, became associated with the with the Nazis, you had to say an Aryan or a Protestant, you know, a person to be a member of the organization. They specifically restricted African Americans, but they were say colored at the time, uh, quote unquote Mongolians or Orientals, quote unquote, or people of the Hebrew faith. That was, but it would kind of reflect the same things that were going on in society post pre-World War II, post-World War II, that you would see in restrictive housing covenants. There's an, an op-ed piece in today's New York Times about uh, opposition to government schools, which says that uh, the conservative opposition to so-called government schools goes all the way back to uh, post-Civil War times and is very much about the same sort of things, restrictions. You know, we don't want to go to school with, uh, with black people, with Jews, uh, with Asians, Oh, because remember, I mean, schools usually, I mean, pre-Civil War, and, and, and a lot of these societies it began as literary societies in on college campuses and then turned into uh, Greek social uh, orders. But a lot of these schools were basically set up for the aristocracy, landed, white male, uh, male, property uh, male. And it was only when we talked about basically college turning into a place where you could have social uh, movement, both economically or socially, uh, around the turn of the 20th century, where going to be an accountant meant that you could move into the middle class, regardless of race, that's when they became uh, tied to that. And I think there's been a push-pull ever since then. Who well, owns that campus? Who, whose campus is that really? And who is just basically an interloper? I thought I asked for an African-American to replace Terry. You requested an Afro-American? African-American. Jerry, you know I did. I put it in writing. I didn't see it. You see it? If you don't like her, you send her back. Yeah, you tell her you didn't like her performance because she was white. That's not the point. Flipper, she's been here for five minutes. Give her a chance. This sounds dangerously like reverse discrimination to me. There are new reports today that the Trump administration is looking to change the way the Department of Justice polices discrimination at colleges and universities. According to an internal document obtained by our partner, The New York Times, the department is set to shift its priorities away from enforcing anti-discrimination laws on behalf of minorities. Instead... DOJ is preparing to use its civil rights division to go after cases where white college applicants say they've been discriminated against. The Supreme Court has ruled that race can be used as one factor among many in a holistic admissions process, but there are pending cases that the DOJ could now get involved in. For more, we turn to Tamiko Brown-Nagan. She's a professor of constitutional law at Harvard Law School. Professor, welcome. Hi, Todd. Uh, what was your reaction to the reports of this change in priorities at the Civil Rights Division at the DOJ? Yes, well, it's not at all surprising that the Trump administration would pursue this course. For decades, affirmative action has been both a legal issue and a political wedge issue. It is controversial, it is easy to mischaracterize, and it riles people up. So opposing affirmative action may turn out to be legally dubious in the long run, but it's definitely um, a political winner for Trump. So you see this as good politics filtered through the civil rights division by political appointees, giving some headlines in ways that Trump supporters will appreciate. Uh, that's right. For those in his base who resent non-whites, uh, people who are inclined to believe that affirmative action is a zero-sum game that benefits racial minorities at the expense of whites. After all, this president is embattled. His approval ratings are historically low. His administration has lost in a number of uh, arenas on health care, um, largely lost in the courts on the 
Muslim ban, it's lost personnel at an alarming rate. So I'll repeat, it it may be legally dubious in the long run. I don't know that that's true, but it may be. But politically, it seems like it's a winner. So Professor Brown-Nagan, let's get into some of the legal issues at stake here. The Supreme Court, as I said, has said in its rulings, it's rejected race race-based quotas, but it's upheld race as one factor in an evaluation of students for college admission. Where's the legal room here for the DOJ if they want to start suing and going after colleges and universities for discrimination against white people? Right. So in 2006, the court, by a four to three vote, sustained an affirmative action plan uh, used by the University of Texas, a move that surprised uh, many commentators. Kennedy was the decisive vote and wrote in a majority opinion that affirmed the constitutionality of these plans to ensure diverse student bodies, but at the same time, and here's the wiggle room for this Department of Justice, it held that federal courts should vigorously interrogate or strictly scrutinize, to use the legal parlance, whether affirmative action plans are in fact necessary to achieve diversity and narrowly drawn for that purpose. Uh, So courts uh, can, and DOJ has tremendous authority to review what universities are actually doing. So that says, though, that diversity is still the goal. Um, And does that mean that the Civil Rights Division would have to go after a university to say what you're doing doesn't promote diversity? Or if it's keeping qualified white people out, that that's against diversity? Uh, Well, I think what the DOJ has to do is focus on the second part of the formulation. Um, That is that there's no uh, good reason to believe, given the current makeup of the court, that there would be a reassessment of uh, diversity as a compelling uh, governmental interest. The wiggle room, as I say, is on the other end of the spectrum where uh, courts and DOJ could review universities' programs to see if they're narrowly drawn. So if they are as burdensome or the least burdensome as possible to uh, white students uh, or to other students who are not beneficiaries of the program. How much of this is really new? The Department of Justice under the George W. Bush administration de-emphasized civil rights enforcement of admissions discrimination against minorities. They didn't do away with it but they did de-emphasize it. Is this new move from the Trump administration's Department of Justice in some ways standard Republican fare, or is it something more? Uh, So that's that's an interesting question. I do think that it's consistent with what a lot of Republican administrations have done. However, it is occurring in a different um, context. First of all, As I understand from the reporting, these are political appointees who are going to be um, reviewing these programs. And moreover, I think the political context is is quite combustible. If you think about where we are in this country in terms of racial climate, it is uh, quite combustible, a combustible mix for, on the one hand, many uh, racial minority students on campus feeling like they're under threat. And on the other hand, you have conservatives who think that uh, liberals are trying to shut down debate over issues like uh, the immigration ban, sexual assault, affirmative action. So the the Trump administration is really taking a stand in a way that plays to its political base, 
um, but in a context that is, I think, worse than we have seen in many, many decades in terms of race relations. So in the end, before we let you go, Professor, from a legal perspective, what are you looking for in terms of how much change the Civil Rights Division under the Trump administration can bring to the face of affirmative action at colleges? Right. Uh, well, what it has the authority to do is to you know, pick and choose uh, colleges at will whose policies to review. Um, so it has a tremendous uh, authority to, to shake things up, to chill the environment in which these policies are pursued. On the other hand, it's overkill in that there already are cases pending against uh, a number of universities, Harvard included, um, where the DOJ can assert a position throwing the weight of the federal government behind organizations that already uh, are opposing affirmative action and have been litigating these cases for some time. Professor Tamiko Brown-Nagan of Harvard University Law School, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Early morning, a time of rest, quiet, and repose. On August 8, 1978, only the early birds in search of worms were steering. Also, cops assembled heavily armed. They attacked the move house in West Philadelphia's Powelton Village. Then, hundreds and perhaps thousands of shots poured into the house. How could we know the number? For before night fell, the building would be shattered, raised into the dark, wet earth. Water cannons pumped hundreds of gallons into the house, a deliberate attempt to flush move people from their own communal home. When they emerged to escape drowning and bullets shot into the dark basement, men, women, and children arose from the murky waters to find themselves facing dozens of cops fiendishly pointing rifles and pistols at them. Instinctively, they raised their arms to show that they weren't armed to avoid being shot by the maddened coterie of cops. Delbert Africa pulled himself out of a basement window, his arms raised above his back and chest bare, only to be rifle-butted, slammed with a police helmet, and when he fell, pummeled, kicked repeatedly in his face and head. When he appeared in court for arraignment some hours later, his left eye looked more like a golf ball than an eyeball. Saliva ran down his chin, reflecting his broken jaw. Almost all of the men were beaten. And what of the women? They were driven to the banks of the Delaware River, where they heard cops arguing amongst themselves. One cop would say, let's rape them and throw them into the water. They were rerouted and driven to the nearby House of Correction, a county prison to await trial. What happened to them on August 8th, the holistic rain of police gunfire, beatings, rape threats, and incarceration was nothing compared to what they faced in Philadelphia courtrooms, where they were denied their every right, including their alleged right of self-representation, beaten again when they refused to attend their own legal lynchings. And then the linchpin, convictions, and common sentences before Judge Edwin Malmed of 30 to 100 years for third-degree murder? Malmed, during a phone call from me to the Frank Ford Show at WWDB-FM Radio, where the judge was a guest, answered the question of who killed the cop by saying, I haven't the faintest idea. Nine people, nine, 
men and women, nine MOVE members, and 30 to 100 years. Today, August 2017, marks 39 years in prison for MOVE members, of which seven survive. Merle and Phil Africa have returned to the source under what can only be called suspicious circumstances. Another fact, none of the imprisoned MOVE sisters had weapons charges. Eddie Africa was never convicted of any degree of murder. His charges? Attempted assault, I kid you not. MOVE members are in prison today because they were MOVE members, period. They're guilty of nothing except resistance to a racist, brutal, corrupt system. The same system that gave rise to mass incarceration on a scale that the world has never seen before. Their sentences are an abomination. Free Delbert, Eddie, Mike, Chuck, Janine, Janet, and Debbie Africa. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. So there's a story out about a, a cop in Louisiana uh, who posted something horrific that I'm going to show you in a second. It is really kind of stomach churning. It's a cartoon, but it's not for kids. Uh, he is um, actually an assistant chief at Esther Wood Police Department. He did wind up resigning on Tuesday. His name is Wayne Welsh. And on social media, he put out this cartoon. So it says um, it's got a, a white mom putting her daughter's head into the bathtub, almost like drowning her. And it says, when your daughter's first crush is a little Negro boy. In other words, you kill your daughter if they like black uh, kids, okay? So look, we've seen a lot of violence in, in these clips and in uh, different things, whether it's the police or others. Uh, and, but that, for whatever reason, like shook me more than anything else. Uh, and and obviously it's deeply problematic if the cop thinks this is their opinion of black people. Mm -hmm. They hate them so much they'd kill their own kids if they thought they were going to date someone like a black person. Okay, now he's gonna, he's going to say, of course, oh, I was joking. Is this, that's, that's a good joke. Mm -hmm. I mean, he goes, if you're not in that mind frame, would you ever send a cartoon like that? Oh my God, I'd be horrified. All right, anyway, so good point here by a Twitter follower. They say cops. Uh, you shouldn't uh, fear if you haven't done anything wrong. <laughs> and he says, this was done by a cop, right? And it's black Aziz Ansari on Twitter. And he's, his point being, no, sometimes they just don't like us. They have a vitriolic hatred of us, whether we did something wrong or we didn't do something wrong. So, and this is a good example. Now, how does Wayne Welsh uh, justify it? He says, it's not against the law. What is this grammar by the Jesus Christ? This guy is so stupid. Anyway, it's not against the law if you share stuff on Facebook. It's social media, internet. No, 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 God, you're missing it, man. It's not that you've got your First Amendment right to hate black people. You're a cop and you're supposed to be protecting the community. And in that community are white people and black people. If you view them as the enemy, well, I can't give you a gun and a badge and 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 think that you're going to treat them equally because you're obviously not going to. He's like, well, I can, look, not as a cop. Look, so if you if if anyone wants to defend that and say that it's just a joke, it's not a big deal, you know, have have a little sense of humor. You have to at least admit that you have to be particularly dim. 
to post something like that on a public forum, especially considering the atmosphere that we're dealing with right now, right? If you are a cop, it's pretty dumb to post something like that. And I okay. don't think he's joking. Yeah, I don't no, think it's he's cute. He's definitely and not joking. Listen to what he just said next. Welsh's Facebook post also reportedly complained that critics were playing the quote race card and that people were out to depict him as a bad guy. What the? We didn't bring up race. You brought up race saying you would drown your daughter. Ha ha, I would drown my daughter if they were dating a black guy. Look, guys, you gotta step in their shoes for one second and think, my God, if someone hated you like that and they had a gun on a badge, wouldn't you be a little afraid of them too? This is a terrible attitude. Thank God he was fired or had to resign and he's not on the force anymore. But this is atrocious and unfortunately happens far too often. Things have happened. It's amazing when I talk to people and they say, man, I've been seeing folks protest and nothing has happened. When in reality, there are 40 new laws in 24 states. Uh, you would not have the number of police departments body cameras. You now have city councils that are now looking at the police union contracts uh, and rewording them. And so um, what do you say to the folks who are in the movement to keep them encouraged when other folks are saying, Nothing is happening. It's not improving, but also from your perspective, the what's next. We're going to kick off today with a couple of stories about law enforcement. So let's hope uh, you don't get pulled over or otherwise stopped by police. But if you do, they will be required to record your racial background. We'll explain why in just a few minutes. First, though, all video captured by body cameras worn by LAPD officers. You might be seeing at least some of it soon. The civilian board that oversees the department is considering lifting its prohibition on the release of some body cam videos maybe by the end of this year. It's happening as L.A. cops are getting more accustomed to carrying cameras. Here's KPCC's Frank Stoltz. It's a relatively quiet night in downtown L.A. when LAPD Sergeant Fabiano Spina hears a call over his radio. He says it's a 415. A disturbance. 415 is a known disturbance. It turns out a man is assaulting people inside a drug rehab center. We're looking for a male white wearing an orange shirt. The sergeant turns on his body camera as he steps out onto the sidewalk to find his officers. The suspect is long gone, and he turns it off. Officer Oscar Orozco has had his camera on from the moment he first responded about 15 minutes earlier. The 25-year-old joined the LAPD two years ago and has always worn a camera. I mean, it's kind of second nature to me. It's not something I think about twice. I mean, I think it just holds like officers accountable. Nearby, Officer Dave Bowen walks a footbeat. The 15-year veteran also has worn a camera since they were introduced two years ago. It's a silent witness. Bowen says while the camera is a witness, it misses a lot. So I talk a lot when I activate my body-worn camera to give an insight into my state of mind, what I see. He gives an example of a woman causing a disturbance. Let's say she's sitting on the curb next to a phone. The knife is under here. He points under his thigh, a place the camera can't see. Bowen says he'd make sure to say out loud, she's armed. You want clarity for anyone who watches it. Bowen is one of about 4,000 LAPD officers now equipped with body-worn cameras. The department plans to outfit all 7,000 of its frontline cops with cameras by February. Yeah, we look at videos all the time on pretty much a daily basis. Central Division Captain Scott Harrelson reviews all video of incidents involving complaints against officers. He says complaints are down 30 percent this year, but concedes it's unclear if officers are behaving better because of the cameras or people know they can't get away with bogus claims. He also reviews all videos of incidents involving car chases and any use of force from an arm twist to a shooting. 
So far, he likes what he sees. Everything that I believed to be happening before we had the body worn is truly happening. And the guys are out there and the girls are out there and they're doing what they're trained to do and what they're supposed to do. But you'll have to take his word for it. The public never sees any of it. Because when the first body cams were deployed, the police commission agreed with Chief Charlie Beck and the powerful union that represents rank-and-file officers that the videos should be considered evidence, not subject to public disclosure. The commission is now reconsidering that policy amidst growing public anger over citizen videos of police shootings like last year's killing of Philando Castile in Minnesota. We got pulled over for a busted tail light in the back and the police killed my boyfriend. Shane Murphy Goldsmith is a member of the L.A. Police Commission. For me, it's it's a desire to increase transparency and accountability. She says the panel is considering releasing video from high-profile incidents, not just from cameras worn by officers, but also from dashboard cameras. Murphy Goldsmith is well aware of the limitations of video. You will get more of the story. Again, it's not going to be the whole story, and I think that's going to be a challenge. While Chief Beck has said he's open to releasing some videos, police union president Craig Lally remains staunchly opposed. There's going to be such pressure on them once it starts getting released to release everything. I really have a problem with that. He says, what if a video appears to show an officer beating someone, but there's evidence to the contrary that isn't released? Police unions have successfully lobbied against attempts by some state lawmakers to mandate the release of more video. Law enforcement leaders around the country are closely watching what the LAPD does. Cal State Fullerton criminal justice professor Philip Comp says that's because the LAPD is a trendsetter. We're talking about the West Coast. They're the big dog, so to speak. Do you want to show clear from uh, Launchers America on Crawford? Back on the streets of downtown L.A., Officer Bowen says he'll follow whatever video release policy the police commission chooses. Still, he laments what he sees as the loss of public trust in the badge and the uniform. There was an era where justice was sufficient. It no longer is. You almost have to provide a rationale for every single thing you do, and you have to sell that you're doing police work, and they probably should do what you're asking them to do. But he's come to terms with the fact that along with his badge and handcuffs and gun, he has to put on his body camera when he goes to work every day. Covering public safety, I'm Frank Stoltz. More on police now. In California, whenever the police stop someone, regardless of the reason, officers will have to record a new piece of information, the person's race. Then that data will go into a statewide database. It's all because of a state law signed by Governor Brown in 2015. It's an effort to track the actions of law enforcement and see if they are disproportionately targeting certain racial groups. We reached out to Jack Glazer to explain how the racial data might be used. He's a professor at UC Berkeley and author of Suspect Race, Causes and Consequences of Racial Profiling. Jack, welcome to Take Two. Thank you. So walk me through what could happen. Let's say I'm stopped by an LAPD officer. I'm driving home from work today, and they're supposed to note my race. But how do they determine that? Because sometimes, Jack, it's not that simple or obvious. Right. Uh, and in fact, the regulations as they're written are very clear about that, that the officers are supposed to only report the perceived race as well as perceived gender and sexual orientation of the person that they've stopped. Uh, and the idea there is that uh, they shouldn't be asking people about that information because that's intrusive, but also the most important thing really 
from a regulatory standpoint is what is the officer's perception because it's the perceptions that drive any biased behavior. Yeah, so if the officer, Jack, is just making a guess, I mean, what's the value in that? Well, again, if we're trying to get at, and remember, this is originally the Racial and Identity Profiling Act, so the law is intended to address uh, racial and identity bias in policing. Uh, and if, it is, if we're attempting to get an accounting of the extent to which officers are using race or other identities, ethnicity, uh, national origin, et cetera, as a basis for suspicion, then we really want to know what the officer's subjective perception of that is. Now, you could argue that uh, we, what we really want to know is what the disparate impact is on the different groups, uh, and that would be a different question. But for the most part, the general concern is what what are the officers doing and what's causing them to do it. So their perception is what matters most. Yeah, but the, the, okay, so their perception, we don't have anything then after that to base it on what the reality is. So their perception, if we had data to say, okay, you were wrong in that case or you were right in that case, then I could see there being a lot of value. Right. Yeah, and that's a challenge. And this, the data coming from this new set of regulations is not going to be able to address that directly. That's going to have to be connected with other data uh, that will probably be in, in another source of the criminal justice system, which would be arrest rates and, and those data to look. But we will not be able to, as currently constructed, we will not be able to pair these data directly with the actual outcomes to see what's going on. And that's a trade-off that the you know people writing the regulations had to consider. Uh, on the other hand, you might also consider how intrusive it would be if officers start asking people, yeah. well, you know, what are you? Are you Hispanic? Are you black? Are you gay? Are you straight? Uh, th- those also pose real concerns for, for civilians. Speaking of Jack Laser, author of Suspect Race, Causes and Consequences of Racial Profiling. Uh, law enforcement agencies protested the law when it was up for debate. Why do they do that? Uh, it's commonly the case that when data reporting requirements are, are put forward, that law enforcement agencies oppose it. Uh, they see it as burdensome, and I think it's a reasonable concern. It's an extra thing that they're going to have to do. I think some of them also are concerned about um, having to uh, afford that level of transparency. What we generally find is that when departments start recording these data, it's not as burdensome as they thought. If you read this regulations, you know, the markup of the, of the current regulations is 34 pages. It looks really overwhelming, but when it gets actually implemented, it comes down to really filling out a form. And that, um, you know, that is an extra step that they have to take, but it's something that departments all over the country are doing already and are doing without, without any, any compromise to their effectiveness. Jack, do you know if, if members of the public or even researchers such as yourself will be able to say maybe somebody to access this information? Yeah, as far as my, my reading of the regulations at this point indicates that they will. Um, as far as members of the public, the data should be available to them, but not with any unique officer identifiers. Um, however, one good thing about the current state of the regulations is that there will be unique officer identifiers provided to the Department of Justice, and those will be available to the Department of Justice analysts and to researchers who are able to gain access um, through, through the Department of Justice. And that's really important because you're going to want to be able to look at, at temporal trends in you know, which officers are doing what, and you'd also want to be able to say, well, is, is this high rate of stops of this particular group due to, you know, a systematic bias across a whole department, or is it really just a small number of officers? So we really need that data. I think, though, the public is not going to have access to officer identifiers. Jack, what do you think the most important thing we can get out of this could be? 
Wow. Um, well, I think uh, it's going to it's really going to enable managers and researchers and regulators and other stakeholders to systematically monitor and analyze the the relatively discretionary aspects of policing, which is police making determinations about suspicion and who to stop and search, uh, which is the area where we probably see the greatest degree of racial and identity bias occurring. So I think it, it should afford a pretty powerful opportunity for monitoring that and then working with law enforcement, improving the state of affairs. UC Berkeley's Jack Laser is author of Suspect Race, Causes and Consequences of Racial Profiling. Jack, thank you very much. Thank you. This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. My rifle is my best friend. It is my life. I must master it as I must master my life. Without me, my rifle is useless. Without my rifle, I am useless. I must fire my rifle true. I must shoot straighter than my enemy who is trying to kill me. I must shoot him before he shoots me. I will. Before God, I swear this creed. My rifle and myself are defenders of my country. We are the masters of our enemy. We are the saviors of my life. So be it, until there is no enemy. But peace. Amen. A recent headline in the AP caught our eye. Black women picking up firearms for self-defense. And in the photos, a robed minister clutching a Bible and her handgun, an airline attendant taking aim with her Glock. Now, in places where they track the race of gun purchasers, black women are outpacing whites. Then there's the National African-American Gun Association, founded in 2012 by Philip Smith, who thought he'd get a few members. He now has 20,000 with 30 chapters across the country. Marshall Tigner is assistant director of training for the National African-American Gun Association. She's a firearms instructor. She travels the country teaching women gun safety. Of her 700 students, 97% are African-American, as she is. Her company is Trigger Happy Firearm Instruction, and Marshall joins us from Georgia Public Radio in Savannah. Marshall, hi. Hi, how are you doing? I- I'm okay, but you know, for some people, this there's a flinch there. Trigger Happy Firearm Instruction. <laughs> Talk a little bit about your tone there. What are you trying to do? So it's not literally about firearms. It's more so a life mantra. You know, instead of waiting and hesitating on deciding what you want it to do with your life, just pull the trigger, you know, jump out there and see what happens. And in your case, guns might not have been on the horizon, but then you went to the National Guard. Did you have some sort of a transformation on guns? I did. Initially, when I was growing up, my parents kept us away from firearms. We didn't have them in the home. And the things that I saw on TV led me to believe that only the Police officers have firearms and criminals. And when I joined the military, my thought process changed. They're not just for criminals to have. They're for law enforcement and the general public to carry them if they so choose for self-defense purposes. Well, you know, when we were at the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia, we met up with Maj Touré. He has founded a group called Black Guns Matter. And at first I had the same reaction some people may be having hearing from you, that it seemed counterintuitive, that blacks are disproportionately victims of gun violence. White adults are more likely than blacks or Hispanics to own guns, but black adults are more likely to know someone who's been shot. Uh, right. So so the thinking is, why would you ha- want to have more guns around since more guns might lead to more of that gun violence? 
I believe that we have to change the stereotypes that are associated with black people in firearms. Every story you see with a black person in a firearm is a negative story. It's about someone, you know, getting shot or someone robbing someone. So I wanted to change that narrative and make it normal. We can exercise our Second Amendment rights just like everyone else can. And it's not just a bad thing or making you a criminal. And I think education is key to changing that narrative. Well, Maj Ture, again, a young man who founded Black Guns Matter, his point was, why are we being left out of this equation? We're the only ones then who are defenseless. And I completely agree with that. The reason why the Second Amendment right is there is to protect and defend our First Amendment right of free speech. So in the black community, we can't speak freely if we cannot defend our right to speak freely. Uh, Again, back to Philip Smith, who founded the African-American Gun Association. He thinks there's something particular to this time that might be why more African-Americans are arming themselves. Do you agree? I believe that it's being more popularized, the stories on the Internet and the news about, you know, African-Americans being shot by law enforcement officers. And it's extremely unfortunate. And I think that's bringing up the conversation more. And African-Americans are not thinking of firearms necessarily as a bad thing as they used to. They're thinking of it more self-defense. And I think it's a good thing. Well, how would a gun help in that situation? We, we saw what happened to Philando Castile. Uh, he was licensed to carry. He told the officer who stopped him he had a gun. But after that, any hand movement he made, the officer thought he was reaching for the gun. How does a gun help there? I think it's the stereotypes that are associated with black people with guns that make it such a frightful thing for law enforcement because it's not normal to them. So when they see black people with firearms, they're automatically thinking, "Okay, that person is a bad guy. And if we normalize it and have everyday African-American citizens and minority citizens carrying firearms and shooting firearms like everyone else does in this country, then it won't be such a fearful thing. Well, I should say not everyone else, but a heck of a lot of people who have guns in this country. But, you know, Philip Smith, again, from the National African-American Gun Association, his point was that he's seeing fear among African-Americans because you have groups that were once on the fringe and that are racist almost being normalized. He's feeling from African-Americans a fear of that. Are you at all hearing that from people who want to be trained using guns? I definitely do. Um, A lot of the women that come to my classes, they feel as though they don't want to tell anyone that they're getting trained with firearms because it'll make them a target. And I feel like we can't have that fear. I'm traveling the country. I'm taking these photos. These images are getting out there again so that we can normalize this. Are you saying you want the message to get out to, let's say, white supremacist groups that African-American women are armed? Yes, I think everyone should know that we are armed. I think the attacker in the alley all the way up to the white supremacist group should know that, hey, we're armed. We're not defenseless as we once were. 40 or 50 years ago when there were laws in place specifically to keep African-Americans from owning firearms, we have defenses now. So we're not going to be easy prey. Well, what about the statistics uh, from the Congressional Small Arms Survey from the Centers for Disease Control? In 2012, there were 259 justifiable homicides in the U.S., killings in self-defense. So 259, but there were 232,000 guns stolen, 20,000 suicides with guns. Women are five times more likely to be killed by an abuser if he has access to a gun, including hers. Now, we hear that women in firearms training classes often ask, you know, can they just shoot to injure, not to kill? The thinking is that some of these women will, in fact, become victims of their own gun. 
I think they're victims of their own guns because they're not educated. The problem in this country is that women buy firearms or usually have firearms purchased for them and they never get any formal education. So they're carrying it around. It's kind of a placebo effect. It's not actually making them any safer. It's just they feel better having it there, although they don't know what they're doing with them. Boy, the statistics are really amazing. The Pew Research Center in 2012 found less than a third of black households viewed gun ownership as positive. But by 2015, three years later, that number had jumped to 59% of black families saw owning guns as a necessity. Again, what do you say to people who say that more guns in circulation mean more gun deaths of innocents? It's not the firearms that are causing these issues. Like people say, guns don't kill people, people kill people. And a lot of those deaths that get rolled into those statistics are accidental deaths. And the way to combat that is education. If you learn how to use it in the proper way it's meant to be used, then we won't have that fear. Uh, What's the one thing you do differently if there's women that you're teaching? I don't necessarily teach the information differently. I think it's the fact that there is a woman teaching the class that makes them more comfortable in the classroom that makes all the difference. Are there women, and there may be men as well, who have said, you know what, I actually thought I was going to use this gun and train to protect my children. Now that I'm more familiar with this gun, I don't want it in my house. Yes, and I honestly, I respect that opinion. The problem is a lot of people who are making the laws and who are making decisions about gun ownership in this country have never gone to a range. They've never taken a class. So until you've actually done it or experienced it, how can you formulate an opinion about it? Um, Are you a member of the National Rifle Association? I am still currently a member of the National Rifle Association. Yeah. Some people think of that as a very right-leaning political organization. They are, and they're very open and loud about their political stances. In their eyes, it's like if you don't support the current presidential administration, then you're completely anti-gun. And that's not necessarily the truth. You can say, I love firearms. I love your advocacy for firearms rights and gun rights. However, I also disapprove of some of the things in this presidential administration. They're alienating an entire group of people who may want to be a part of the National Rifle Association and take advantage of the opportunities that they have. Do you mean people of color, minorities? Yes, minorities. And that's why Phil created the National African-American Gun Association. So they feel like, well, you've been alienated by other organizations. You can come here and feel welcome. You've also mentioned another group. Is it well-armed women? Do you feel welcome there? I was a member at one point in uh, the South chapter of Atlanta. Our chapter is actually all African-American women. So I felt really comfortable. And then I would tell other women across the country, hey, check out this organization. And they would go to their website and they wouldn't see any women of color. And they felt like, well, is this organization for me? Because I don't see myself represented, you know, on their website. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if I feel comfortable there. So I think they could get more members also by opening up their minority group. Well, uh, Marshall Tigner, firearm instructor, founder of Trigger Happy Firearm Instruction in Geddon, She's not asking you to be trigger-happy with a gun, but (laughs) in making decisions in your life. Marshall, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And another stat, African-American women outpace all others in securing concealed carry permits in Texas, though they have far fewer guns overall than whites. Your thoughts, welcome at (laughs) hereandout.org. Memphis, Tennessee. A bitter strike of black garbage workers echoed the issues of the Poor People's Campaign, the same issues King planned to bring to Washington. And I had seven kids uh, in school trying to 
educate my kids and trying to buy a home. Uh, it was just, it was really rough. But I know that something had to happen. That we can, couldn't continue on making a dollar for cent an hour. The city refused to recognize the local sanitation workers union. In late January, the union accused the city of racial bias. Days later, two black workers were accidentally killed on the job. Their families were not entitled to compensation. The workers decided they had had enough. The year after the 1967 Detroit riots, sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, went on strike. They were demanding better pay and safer working conditions after two black workers were crushed to death by a malfunctioning truck. We were fighting for equal payment and equal rights from the sanitation department. That is Elmore Nickelberry. He's one of the 14 surviving workers who went on strike in February of 68. He still works for the Memphis Sanitation Department today. And this month, he got a nice surprise from the city of Memphis, an unexpected windfall of $70,000. It shocked me. It really did shock me because uh, they said we were going to get us a long time ago, and we, we didn't never did get it. Let's go back in Elmore Nickelberry's history a bit to explain. I've been working ever since, uh, since before the strike. I've been with the sanitation department 63 years. The Memphis sanitation strike was a key moment in the civil rights movement. The workforce was made up of about 1,300 black men, and during the two-month strike, workers encountered police brutality and threats from city officials. On April 3rd, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. traveled to Memphis to talk to the striking workers. That speech is now famously known as the Mountaintop Speech. We've got to give ourselves to this struggle until the end. Nothing would be more tragic than to stop at this point in Memphis. we got to see it through. The next evening, Dr. King was assassinated. I was on my way down to uh, Cleveland Temple. When, 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 when I was on my way down there, they said, Dr. Martin Luther King just had got shot. So I, I turned around and come on back home. I was, I was shocked to hear that. Because he was one of the greatest men I ever known. Despite Dr. King's death, the strike was eventually a success, and things changed for the Memphis Sanitation Department. Workers were given a city pension, but oddly enough, not the workers who actually did the striking. Those surviving 14 strikers are not on the city's pension plan. To this point, they've had to rely on Social Security. So the city of Memphis has just announced it's giving grants to the men who went on strike back in 1968, $70,000 apiece. I was glad to get it because uh, I reserved that. Reserved that. Elmore Nickelberry didn't quite say he was ready to retire off of the $70,000, but he does have some plans for it. If I can get some of the bills paid and, and go on a trip, me and my wife, and put on my bamboos and get on a beach and play in the sand. The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. The state of Maryland officially declared today, August 1st, as Henrietta Lacks Day and dedicated the stretch of Broning Highway from the Baltimore City and Baltimore County lines into Turner Station to the former resident of that community. WYPR's Dominique Maria Benessi was at the commemoration ceremony at the Logan Village Shopping Center today and has more. Descendants of Henrietta Lacks gathered with state officials and members of the Henrietta Lacks Legacy Group in the shopping center parallels of the highway to honor Lacks on her 97th birthday. 
David Sunnylax Jr. said that after 50 plus years, his grandmother is getting the credit she deserves. I was often asked why was Henrietta so important, and I would tell people she's important because she existed, and because she existed, you know, all of us exist but also millions of people around the world is this. Lax died of cervical cancer in October 1951 at the age of 31. But the cells taken from her body by Johns Hopkins Hospital doctors without her knowledge lived on and rapidly reproduced under laboratory conditions. They've been used in polio vaccines and research into cancer, HIV, AIDS, and other diseases and disorders. The popular book and later movie, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, depicts the great lengths her daughter, Deborah Lacks, went through to find the truth of her mother's cancer cells. David Lacks Jr. says the family currently works with Johns Hopkins and the science community to attribute discoveries to Henrietta. But I think we have still a long way to come. I'm Dominique Maria Bonesi for 88.1 WYPR. Black babies cost less. Women who believe they may become pregnant are generally in good health. So when it comes to birth control, the Food and Drug Administration is supposed to set a high bar for approval. Any adverse reaction or side effects should weigh heavily against allowing a device or a drug on the market. But an investigation published this weekend in the Washington Post magazine found that in the 15 years that a permanent form of contraception called eSure has been available, thousands of women have reported serious health problems from the device. Jennifer Block is a Brooklyn-based journalist who reported the story. She joins me now. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning. You write that eSure is supposed to work by creating scar tissue that physically blocks the eggs from coming through a woman's fallopian tubes. What kind of problems did you find? So eShore is a coil that's wrapped around another coil that's wound with the same polyester that was popular in the 70s for not wrinkling. And the coils are supposed to keep the device in place while those fibers stimulate an inflammatory reaction and create scar tissue and basically block the tubes so that sperm can't get through to the egg. The problems that women are having, number one, the device seems to be breaking apart in some women. And so pieces of it are... Uh, being found in other parts of the body. They've punctured other organs like the bladder. They've embedded into the uterus. And then there's the outer coil of it is made of a nickel-titanium alloy. And it has been used in medical devices for years. And nickel, we know, is a toxin. It's supposed to be safe because of the way it's treated. But what we're seeing is that women are, are coming in with all sorts of stuff that mirrors a lot of autoimmune disease. In fact, many of the women, they're thinking they have lupus. Now, you would think that doctors would speak to their patients about these reactions, these possible reactions. Is this just not happening? You know, from the brochures, the descriptions are of like a soft, flexible insert um, that works with the natural pathways of the body. Many of the women I talked to were not informed of even what it's made out of, let alone what the possible reactions might be. Do we know how many women have gotten eSure and, and how many of them have experienced these problems you've talked about? That is one of the tough things about reporting this. There's no way to know exactly how many women have the device in them. We only have the sales figures, which are estimates that have kind of stayed the same over the last four years. About 750,000 devices have been sold. But in practice, many of those devices, somewhere between 4 and 12 percent, maybe more, don't actually end up implanted. The, the procedure fails, essentially, and those devices get thrown away. And similarly... You know, we have um, about 16,000 adverse event reports to the FDA, which are official reports that either women or doctors or hospitals or the manufacturer has made. 
Um, but again, those are notoriously underreported. So there's really no way to know what that actual number is of, you know, percentage. With all of the side effects that are possible, how did Esure get on the market to begin with? That was a big question of mine. And one thing I learned is that as this was being developed, there was a real hunger in the women's health community for a permanent method that was non-surgical. Back then, the only option um, was to get your tubes tied. It, it was well-established and pretty safe. But people really wanted a way for women to be able to do this non-surgically and a way for, I think, clinics to be able to offer something permanent. So Esure is still on the market. I'm curious, what does this say about the risks that the FDA thinks are acceptable when it comes to women's health and contraception? I really didn't get a good answer. Most medical devices aren't expected to last that long. And so what is the amount of of adverse events that we're going to accept for for the women who are getting a benefit from this, who are able to avoid the surgery, have a permanent method? You know, there are, there are other options. I mean, there always were other options, but I think that's a really good question that we all need to think about. Yeah, acceptable levels of risk. Mm-hmm. Jennifer, thank you so much. Jennifer Block is a freelance journalist. You can find her story in The Washington Post and on PRX's podcast, Reveal. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. This is Morning Edition on WNYC. breakthrough in medical research announced today, the first time that a human embryo has been successfully edited in the U.S. to correct an inherited condition. The milestone could open the way for future treatments, but it also crosses a line that many have opposed. Hari Srinivasan has more from our New York studios. The work was done with a technology known as CRISPR. Essentially, a team of scientists snipped out the gene that causes a heart disease known as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Researchers at Oregon Health and Sciences University showed they could erase the mutation not just from the DNA of the embryos, but also made sure the disease would not be passed on to future generations. That's known as germline editing, and there's been a major debate about whether that could lead to genetic engineering going too far. Researchers point out it's not ready for clinical use. Yet it could lead one day to treating some inherited diseases. We examine the breakthrough with Jessica Berg, Dean of the Case Western Reserve Law School and Professor of Bioethics. Thanks for joining us. So tell us, how significant of a breakthrough is this that's been just published? So in one sense, it is simply the continuation of a line of research, which we've been doing for a while, about the use of CRISPR in genetic editing in a variety of settings. In another sense, it was a pretty significant advance. So this was the first study that avoided two fairly significant concerns that we'd seen in earlier studies. One of them was that the editing didn't always hit just the spot you wanted to edit, So, of course, you might be concerned that you changed other parts of the genetic code. 
and the other being that you couldn't necessarily get every cell to take up the edit you were trying to achieve. Both of those things are important before you move to a clinical setting. And so they addressed both of those in this particular experiment? This study had, was successful in not having either of those two things happen. Okay, so who stands to benefit the most here? I mean, in this particular case, we were talking about a heart condition, um, but could this be applied to the 10,000 different diseases that are on a single gene somewhere? So in theory, this could be applied to any kind of a single gene defect. Um, you know, so certainly this would be, um, you know, uh, an important thing and an important advance for any kind of a clinical trial that you'd like to do correcting a single gene problem. Now, that's where kind of if you can modify a single gene, I think people are going to be concerned, could you modify it not just to get rid of the bugs, but sort of to add features if there were, say, eye color or freckles? Most of the rest of the stuff is much, much harder very few things that we code for genetically that we think of designing or changing are things that are controlled by one gene. Most of them have many genes involved and have gene environment interactions. So we're pretty far away from being able to do anything where you pick and choose the characteristics to add in. The other concern is this was designed specifically to look at a problem part of the code remove the problem part, and insert the correct part. Inserting something else on top, so for example, not taking something else out, or trying to take something else out that's correctly coded, could lead to all sorts of other problems, and we'd be very, very cautious before we'd want to try anything like that. Well, one of the big concerns here was that this is not just editing the genes of a specific individual, but that this could change the inherited trait that goes on generation after generation. I mean, the National Academy of Sciences met earlier this year and said that we really should reserve this for the absolutely most serious and important conditions, right? Yes, and I think part of that concern is we don't know yet all of the implications of what we're trying to do. And so in those situations, you might want to be cautious and only change things that affect one generation. On the other hand, if you're thinking from a clinical standpoint, the idea that you'd have to correct the same genetic defect in each subsequent generation, or, for example, that anybody choosing to have children, knowing they could potentially pass on the genetic flaw, might say, well, what, if you can cure this, why not cure it through all generations? Right. So what are the ethical concerns here? So the ethical concerns relate at various levels. On the first level, if you have concerns about the use of an embryo in a research setting, you will be concerned about this type of research. The embryos in question will be destroyed, discarded, or stored indefinitely, and for some people, that alone will be a reason to be very concerned. The other concerns raised are going to be, how do you get this from the setting it's in, a research setting, to a clinical setting? As soon as you start to move forward, you involve other entities. So to actually have this result in the birth of a baby without the genetic flaw, you've got to implant this in a woman. As soon as you do that, you're doing research with pregnant women. What are you going to do when things go wrong? What are you going to do if the developing fetus does not develop normally? That's going to raise a variety of other ethical questions. And then yep. there's the very interesting question about what happens after the baby's born is this just they've signed up for a research trial for life? 
since we've got to follow the child to see what else is going to happen. These are all pretty big and important questions that I'm sure that people will be tackling for quite some time. Jessica Berg from Case Western Reserve University, thanks so much for joining us. Sure, thank you so much for inviting me. Context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, August 5th, 2017. So I have been told I had to contain my chuckle. They give you this report about this scientific breakthrough and the ramifications, concerns people have, and then they play that music on the way out for anybody the book I've I've mentioned a lot on this program, I think all the way back to broadcast number one when we returned to the airs uh, in 2009, February 2009, um, Neil Postman, he talks in the book Amusing Ourselves to Death. He's written several books that I've mentioned, but he's written many books, but that book specifically, he talks about how news reports where they talk about something serious, you know, maybe somebody died or lots of people died or war this type of, you know, scientific evolution and concerns. And then they have crazy music playing. <laughs> that is, uh, I don't even know what you call that. Anyway, it, it, he talks about it extensively in that book. Uh, Neil Postman, uh, his writings had a big influence on the cows, even him talking his work about context. He talks about that a lot in Amusing Ourselves to Death. This is the compensatory call-in, certainly not about amusement. If you have commentary on <clears throat> any of the news, audio segments that we heard, anything else that happened over the last week or so, if you have counter-racist suggestions, observations, dial in the number 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. That number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Wackiness, I was going to Internet Movie Database I forgot, I was looking for some information as I was working on the clips for the compensatory call-in. While I was searching, I looked on the page, and they have advertisements up for all kinds of things. I thought of Dr. Welsing. They had an advertisement up for the uh, reissue of Death Wish. This was a Charles Bronson film where I think he goes out, I think some black people, I think a black person maybe rapes his daughter or something, a family member. I haven't seen Death Wish, but I I'm real sure that uh, Dr. Welsing talked about this film previously, not on the cows, but because, I mean, this film came out a long time ago, but I think that's the premise of it. I think a black person like rapes or kills a family member of his, maybe a daughter offspring, and he goes out for vengeance. He's going to get these guys. He's going to kill them. And he's got his gun and they do like four of these films where it's a white man with a gun getting vengeance but uh they're doing a reboot of this film with bruce willis uh and it's supposed to be coming out i think sometime for the holidays like in november or something anyway that was on the page 
And then they had a link with all the kooky or just kooky things that happened on August 5th in movies and do the right thing. Uh, Rest in peace to Bill Nunn, Radio Raheem. But Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing takes place on August 5th, which I did not know. And George George H.W. Bush, his speech about uh, Saddam Hussein's uh, alleged aggression in Kuwait was also on August 5th. where he said this aggression will not stand that legendary line that also took place on August 5th. Wacky. Anywho, a couple quick things before we get to callers. We are listener supported counter racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive, racism hyphen notes.blogspot.com racism hyphen notes.blogspot.com. When you hit the blog, look in the top right corner. PayPal button is located there. If you're not into PayPal, drop us an email. We'll get you a physical mailing address. Huge thanks to all the folks who have supported, invested over the years, people who've nabbed items uh, from our wish list, Amazon.com under Gus T. Renegade. Huge thanks. Much obliged. Uh, Hope the program has been worthy of your time and energy and hope people who have listened in have got accurate, practical helpful information on what racism, white supremacy is, how it works, what it means to be classified as white. A couple other things before <clears throat> we get to the callers. Uh, first up, there was a white electrician, or I guess even to give the, the backstory, it's been hot, relatively speaking, for this region. It's been relatively hot. They had like a heat advisory uh, for, I think it was from Tuesday to Friday for this region, like the Pacific Northwest, it ran all the way down into Oregon as well, uh, because it's just, we just don't get all that heat. Like I have lived in my life. I've lived in Georgia in the summertime. I've lived in Virginia in the summertime. I've been in Texas in the summertime, Hawaii in the summertime, Mexico. I know what, you know, summer heat is. I know it well. This is about as far. This is like warm spring, what most people have, like this, this region most of the summer in Seattle, I think it's been like mid upper seven. I know there was a good like two week stretch where it was not hotter than about 74 degrees for about two weeks. And this is like the middle of the summer, middle of July. That's very, very typical for this region. It'll be lovely, just not a lot of heat. So this week it was like 84 degrees. <laughs> it's been in the 80s every day. And so people have been, you know, whip- wigging out and a lot of people don't have air conditioning here, uh, so they the sun has just been leaning on whites real, real hard uh, in this region. Backstory. So, white electrician uh, comes, he's been doing some repairs uh, on the residence, uh, the house where I'm at now. So, he comes by, and <clears throat> I'm not able to give him the information he needs to proceed Uh, with the repairs and I really don't even have time to talk with him and I have no interest in talking because I know I don't have the information that he needs so it's you know there's nothing that we need to discuss so I basically give him that in as efficiently as I can so that we can cease the communication and he says oh man you know I came all the way over here oh I can't do anything and it's so hot oh I'm about to pass out dude could I get a could I get a glass of water and 
I'm kind of like, oh, man, like, you know, I don't really want to help any white person. Now, this person is working on the residence. Some of the repairs that he uh, is doing have benefited me being in the household. But, man, like, I don't even want to give him a glass of water. So I'm looking like ugh. I find the smallest glass that we have in the house. And I say, I am not even willing to give a full glass of water. So I do about a half glass and then I have my Jane Pittman moment and I pause and <laughs> say, I will not go the Jane Pittman route, but you will certainly get the smallest and a not full glass and vamos. That was one. Next. <clears throat> Uh, the importance of reading. I had a, a non-white male contact me uh, this maybe two, three days ago, and he was asking for books to, that I would recommend for a non-white person to get a more accurate understanding of racism, white supremacy specifically. Very common request. Many people have asked for this over the years, weekly basis almost. <laughs> And I have pointed out, number one, I point out all the time on the program books that I think that I have enjoyed. I do not say that these books necessarily uh, are the best in terms of you understanding racism, white supremacy. These are just books that I think are phenomenal. I have enjoyed. I learned a lot. I think other people would learn a lot from reading these books. I've given out my top five repeatedly and pointed out the books as we go. We've read many of them, Medical Apartheid, uh, on the program uh, during the years. Uh, in terms of a book or a series of books to specifically learn about racism, white supremacy, I'm going to share the same response that I told this person. Uh, what I said was that I recall Dr. Welsing being asked this question on the cows. Uh, I think a listener wanted to ask this question, wrote in, and I pitched it to Dr. Welsing. And her response was she did not have a specific book, a or like five books that she would tell anybody to read. Right. She did not have that. She said, I have a library. I read all the time. I'm constantly looking for material to read. That was her response. In fact, I think I could probably put my uh, I could probably locate that broadcast uh, if given some time. It was one of the more recent ones, like 2014, 2015, I think. Uh, but she said, I'm constant. In fact, she named, she said, I just went to the bookstore uh, this week. I went to the bookstore and got a book and she named the book that she purchased. Uh, but she said, that's just the, the way that I think it would be better for us to have a thirst for knowledge and understanding that would be better than just looking to isolate on one or two books. And so I said, I think, and I said, particularly for me, this week, I told folks I just moved and the new spot I relocated. I got a the bedroom that I took has bookshelves in the walls, which is enormous for me. As I saw intimately got reminded of this past week, I was able to unpack my books. I said I I think the past week or so uh, I was able to reshelve my books for the first time in like a year. They had been packed up and boxed and everything. So I have all of my books uh, unpacked now and it took about a week. Uh, I have three bookshelves in the walls 
two of them are nearly full and they hold about 40 books per shelf uh, and we have as I about six shelves are nearly completely filled uh, and I said in the context of this week I definitely would not say one or two because I was just reminded going through of, oh, this one, oh, yeah, books I hadn't even seen in a while. I have some of Tukey Williams' uh, children's books, just things I hadn't even thought of. Uh, and a lot of the books I've read and highlighted, a lot of the books, you know, I've got from authors, Pam's work, uh, just reading, reading, reading what Dr. Welding, uh, Dr. Welsing said consistently when she was on the program. Reading is more important than watching television, reading and writing uh, in particular, but uh, really just be inquisitive uh, to learn and acquire information. I think that is best. And then you will learn about racism, white supremacy, regardless of what you are reading. Uh, I think Dr. Dr. Welsing applied that. I apply that. I think others do as well. Mr. Fuller is a, Mr. Fuller is another person. I know he says all the time that he's not a doctor and doesn't consider himself to be uh, you know, some scholar or, or a real informed person. But Mr. Fuller also has done quite a bit of reading. I know I've talked to him a number of times uh, throughout the years, and he will drop quite a few books, uh, you know, to reference different points, uh, different themes. Uh, Richard Wright, I know he rattled off quite a few, even some of his like obscure titles. Uh, he's another person that I think uh, understands the value uh, of reading and just having being inquisitive. He still reads the newspaper on a regular basis. He's someone I've, I've talked to him and he's referenced newspaper articles that were 20 years old and he referenced them to the day, exact date, exact author exactly what the what the subject of the article was about but just the importance of constantly seeking out and having a hunger for information i think that is the best route to go in terms of uh reading constantly be looking for that next best book that said we'll go ahead and make room for callers the number again 641-715-3600 Four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate uh, if you could keep your commentary to five minutes that would make sure everybody gets an opportunity to speak uh, I'll prompt about that I'm sure once everybody speaks then if you have uh, additional questions or comments that you'd like to share we'll have time for that as well for this program exclusively, I request if we could not use metaphors, racists, they use metaphors, make comparisons between two entities that are not equivalent. They do this all the time. In my view, it is a major way that whites practice deception. Victims, this behavior has been modeled daily and many of us, Gusty Renegade included, we are still learning. We have not come to conclusions on some particular concepts. And so we use metaphors, hoping that they will convey our thoughts. Often they do not. They just add to the confusion. If we could just be direct, specific about what it is we want to say, that would be grand, super appreciated. I will prompt about that as well.
Uh, that's it. If you know you're in a noisy environment, if you could use your mute button, that would also be appreciated. Uh, you can, you know, whatever commentary you want to share, but uh, just use your mute button. That way we can preserve the audio quality of the broadcast. Much obliged. All the footwork, the first few folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Can I bear it? Yes, sir. All right, greetings, Gus. Greetings to all the callers and listeners. Uh, this is uh, Henry from Chicago. Um, agree with you on the uh, books. You can't put uh, a number of books to, to read to understand white supremacy. Uh, it's very vast, uh, and it's very uh, you know extensive. So uh, five books is basically not enough. Even if you got the five best books on white supremacy, it's still not enough. Um, and I also understand too that not every not every book that's by a black author uh, is going to uh, explain white supremacy uh, uh, in its best terms. And uh, even white authors uh, from from some books can be productive in learning white supremacy. So uh, yeah, I agree that you need a library to understand uh, white supremacy. Uh, in regards to one of the clips, uh, I think. The lady's name was uh, Marshall uh, Tigner uh, for the uh, for the gun training. It's weird that uh, when black folks uh, talk about self-defense and in regards to using guns, uh, you know, the, the the woman who was interviewing her, you know, I, I'm assuming she was a white white uh, woman. You know, it it, it, it seemed like she was just trying to kind of discourage her about doing this because, uh, you know, whenever black folks talk about self-defense, you know, they always get this, uh, they always get this, uh, uh, this misconception that, you know, we want to, you know, it's, this is all about killing white people. And, uh, you know, when Malcolm X talked about self-defense, you know, that was the rhetoric that a lot of white people you know, assume that, you know, he wanted, you know, he wanted to kill all white people. And, you know, that wasn't the case. You know, Malcolm was talking about self-defense, the Black Panther Party. You know, they weren't talking about, you know, going out killing cops. They just wanted to defend themselves against cops. And uh, even most recently, uh, I remember, uh, what was back about a month ago, Dr. Tommy Curry was getting threatened because he was talking about black self-defense. And they took the misconception of him talking about that, you know, as, you know, killing, you know, killing all white people. So, you know, I, I, I don't know what white people hear when, when we talk about black self-defense, but it seems like the, uh, the, 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 um, the woman that was interviewing uh, uh, the non-white black woman was, you know, practicing racism in regards to, uh, uh, in regards to her, you know, uh, doing this gun training you know, for the sake of, uh, you know, black self-defense. So uh, that's all I had. I'll meet my line. Appreciate that. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, uh, Gus. Greetings, listeners. Black male calling in from Texas. It is also warm down here, very 
very warm. Uh, it was very interesting listening to the clips, uh, specifically for me, the one regarding the fraternity and the uh, song that they had, speaking about lynching niggers from a tree. It's interesting is if any of your calls have ever heard um, an ice cream truck in their neighborhood, there is a very common uh, tune that is played. Um, we know that tune underneath a, another more friendly name, but that tune actually comes from an old song called Zip Coon. If that's something that you would uh, YouTube or Google, you will see the origins of that uh, that song. It's uh, it's extremely racist. Um, it goes back to antebellum imagery of of, of pickaninnies and blackface and things of that nature. But the idea of turning uh, these the, these these racist songs into common lullabies for children is nothing new. It reminds me of uh, any mini money mode catch a tiger by the toe. But that is the edited version. The real version is catch a nigger by the toe. So this is a, this is a common historical practice. Uh, it, it, it's uh, it, and it's almost limitless. And uh, I agree with you in terms of reading books because these are the the things that you will be able to fill in the blanks as to what extent this is all encompassing in terms of of racism, white supremacy, uh, and and I would say also nonfiction books specifically, um, because it, it, it for me, you know, reading fiction and fantasy books has nothing. The more you learn about this stuff. All of that fantasy stuff, it has nothing on real life. Real life just blows all that stuff away when you see how deeply rooted this stuff is. I would like to share an article that I read uh, this week, which, is, which was, uh, was very upsetting to me. Uh, it, 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 it rendered me just about apoplectic. And uh, if you were to... Uh, Look at it. I think if you Google seven-year-old rocking her hair, and what will come up will be a white girl, age seven, whom has uh, hair that is considered by uh, the article. It is entitled that this that this uh, girl has a syndrome called uncombable hair syndrome. And then you'll see pictures of this white girl. I think she has blue eyes. I know she's blonde, um, has cornrows and, and other ways to try to manage her hair. And this uh, imagery, this article, which I consider propaganda, is uh, to try to embrace the idea that this uh, white girl's hair, which is not traditionally long, straight, and flowy, should be embraced uh, so that her body image and self-esteem will not be diminished. And, you know, this is a trick. Has always been a kind of trick. And this is something that um, helps me remember the context in which I live as a black male. Um, and it is, it is that the rules were never meant for the rulers. People who rule always have the power to define, to 
uh, change, to void, to amend when it comes to their benefit. And what I'm reminded of, I'm reminded of the the school to prison pipeline, which many young uh, black girls are uh, taken out of class because of their hair and how that assaults their self-esteem at a young age. And then that certain kind of cycle begins um, that leads from uh, suspension to them having to double down just to be equal with white people. And then they go in for the job interview, they ace the job interview, and then it is deemed that their hair is messy, it's unkempt, and it is actually legal in some states in this country to refuse hiring someone because of their hair. It's funny how that when it comes to black people, you you receive derogatory comments, derogatory comments, but when it comes to white folks, they will relabel uh, things so that it is acceptable. Um, that is just something that stood out to me in um, my uh, research this week, and then I will um, mute my line. Great, appreciate that, sir. Uh, other folks who dialed in that we've not heard from, if you had commentary you wanted to share, line should be open. Can I be heard? Yes, sir, Alabama. Greetings to Gus, this big victim in the callers. Uh, I got a quick question, uh, Gus. What does uh, antebellum mean? The, well, uh, it means generally, uh, when people use the term, they mean the time period when, I guess, plantation, formal era slavery was happening, uh, the period before the so-called Civil War. Generally, that's the time period that they're talking about when they use that word antebellum. Oh, okay. And I, I did some research on you, Gus, about uh, why you don't like to be called brother. <laughs> Thanks to Eddie, Eddie Moore Jr. I always wonder why you didn't like to be called brother. But I, I came across an episode where he said he was going to sock you, give you a hug and sock you in, sock you in your nose. <laughs> Is that why they? Is that why you don't like to be called brother? That certainly is a great illustration of the great Dr. Eddie Moore Jr. But it's certainly beyond uh, Dr. Moore. But that is that is a fantastic uh, example when he did indeed threaten to sock Gusty in the nose and called me brother about all in the same breath. Yes, on the Thank air, no less. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Other folks who died. Oh, I, w- I was going to say, generally, I do suggest uh, my procedure, my code is I ask the person that uses the term. I don't think I used antebellum today, but I generally ask that person because sometimes people have their own definitions and all that, which is allowable. Right. I make up my own definition for racism, white supremacy. So I generally just try to ask the person who uses the term. Uh, other people that we've not heard from at all. Uh, if you have commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Yes, sir. I guess. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, I just wanted to speak on the, uh, I think that was the uh, officer, I believe in Louisiana, 
Um, I think that was the Young Turks reporting on it. And, like, I, I did get to see that image. I guess it's like a meme. And the art of it, it does look like some type of uh, advertisement from, like, a couple decades ago. And they were still able to uh, apply some kind of, I guess, um, a racist title on it. Uh, it looks like they may have also incorporated, like, religion into it, like baptism or whatever. Uh, putting the, the girl's head in water. Um, it, it was very interesting, that story, and how he was trying to talk about the person being uneducated or whatever, I guess, making a commentary on his grammar or how he spelled things. And, uh, you know, that could have been going into that, that uh, excuse of saying that racist or ignorant it, it seemed like it to me and the the next one was uh like our uh i don't know if he was a police chief but ben tobias like he's been on cnn he's um at our police department uh dpd like he uh put out a tweet i guess replying to what donald trump was talking about the police brutality where he said hey you know uh the next time you get one of those, I guess, thugs or whatever, like when you push their head in the car, like don't even do that. Just throw them inside the vehicle. And the officers behind him were applauding it. So, you know, I guess he's been pretty much getting a lot of uh, good reception from people in general. But it's, it's amazing because uh, Colin Kaepernick and, you know, black people, they pretty much pointing out the same mistreatment or, you know, incorrect activity by law enforcement, but they're not received well like that. Uh, so, you know, it just goes to show you that even um, a police officer or whatever or, or a suspected race soldier can say these things and they'll get applause from it. And the, the term was in another part of the audio segment where I guess they were talking about recording racial identity or whatever but the, you know if you listen to it they said race and identity like i think they're trying to cause confusion when the main focus is race but they're saying gender or sexual orientation like how can you tell somebody's sexual orientation by looking or whatever uh so you know i think they want to practice racism white supremacy uh more um strategically and in a more refined way. Uh, and that's pr that's pretty much all I have to speak on. Thank you. Conflation, I thought that was a great bit of conflation in that segment about the enforcement offices in California being required to get all this new data about uh, racial classification and sexual orientation conflation. They are great uh, racist, great tactic. Uh, we have other folks that we've not heard from. Can I be heard? Greetings, Mr. Steele. Howdy, doody, dudes. Um, uh, yeah, this is uh, Ken Steele. I'm uh, reporting from Chino Hills, California. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted to start out this week by um, pointing out very, something that uh, struck me as very interesting um, in the NPR report uh, regarding 
um, gun ownership uh, amongst black um, uh, people, specifically in this report, I believe they were focusing on black females. Um, you know, I have been uh, bringing attention to this, uh, this campaign of sorts um, that I see in the uh, media, in the white controlled media that is encouraging um, gun ownership amongst uh, black people. It's something that's making me very nervous. And I, I think the concerted effort to um, put us in a similar position uh, that Philando Castile found himself in. And uh, one thing that struck me as really interesting in this uh, discussion was uh, the reporter brought up um, in so many words the um, uh, basically racist history and the racist reality um, that the uh, NRA occupies um, currently and the, uh, the black female uh, gun owner, um, uh, she pointed out that, uh, you know, there were certain benefits to membership. Now, I, you know, I just, the uh, one thing about uh, a lot of these gun nuts that really confuses me is that if the point of having a gun is to protect yourself and to save your life, why would you be a member of an organization and why would you give money to an organization that is literally uh, offering insurance to people who get in trouble for gunning down a black person? Um, it, it, you know, this is something that uh, is one of the so-called benefits of NRA membership. And um, it's de been demonstrated time and time again that they are not here to advocate for um, African uh, for black people um, uh, or African-Americans or however you want to describe it. It's just not the organization for us. So the fact that she insisted um, upon being a member of this organization, despite knowing and being very aware of um, the racist activities that the NRA is um, participating in is very suspicious to me. Um, and uh, it just, again, reminds me of the Madge Torre character and, and the Colian Noir character that the uh, NRA has been pushing forward um, to convince black people to uh, have firearms uh, or to, you know, go for these uh, concealed carry permits or register for these lists. Um, it just, all of it is just something that uh, um, I, I caution uh, victims of racism uh, when moving forward, especially with these people um, um, regarding gun ownership. Again, I'm not against self-defense, but that's just something that I think that we need to be very mindful of. And um, also, uh, I've noticed that on the Internet, um, these suspected racists are working very hard to uh, create confusion in the case surrounding um, police officer uh, Daniel Holtzclaw, uh, a, I guess, an independent news outfit called Crime Watch Daily. Um, who, which is headed by uh, Chris Hansen, the person behind the uh, To Catch a Predator series, um, recently came out with, uh, um, I guess, some sort of investigative report that purports to look at uh, both sides of the question 
should Daniel Holt's claw get a retrial? And I didn't even know that this was even a question that, to be asked. But, you know, they've uh, um, produced an entire program that is uh, designed to cast doubt on the testimony of uh, Daniel Holt's claw's victims. Now, after viewing this program, I'm uh, drawn to conclusion that um, Daniel Holtzclaw is certainly guilty of raping um, a number of women in um, Oklahoma City. But from what I was able to determine, it seems like there was other people doing raping as well. And I suspect that what may have really happened in that case is that uh, he was the fall guy for a number of different officers who were engaging in the activity of wholesale rape of a number of, at, uh, of um, uh, economically disadvantaged victims of racism, uh, white supremacy. And I, I suspect this because there was, uh, you know, they point to the fact that there's a number of different descriptions of um, police officers that the uh, victims gave. And that, to me, suggests, look, I think that there was way more people engaging in that, this activity. And even Jenny Holtzclaw, the sister of Daniel Holtzclaw, got on my page and started going uh, and started attacking me and posting a whole bunch of uh, um, what I perceive to be white supremacist propaganda. So, you know, these people are hard, uh, are working very hard to counter anybody, anybody who is offering uh, a counter narrative to the recent production by this uh, independent news outfit, Crime Watch Daily. So, um, I, you know, that's my uh, report for this uh, segment. I, I hope to be able to share some more um, information in the future. Uh, thank you so much. Just really quickly on Daniel Holtzclaw, there was a report this week, in fact. Uh, I almost included it in the compensatory call in, which I guess I am anyway. Uh, but our, one of our listeners in the great Commonwealth of Virginia shared a report that they are at least inquiring because one of the investigators in the crime lab who did some of the, I guess, DNA results, test results for during the whole Skull trial, that she resigned. Uh, she might have even retired, but she's no longer working in that capacity anymore. And so they were going back and checking over some of her work and they were uh, reporting it almost as, oh, wait a minute, you know, maybe there's some doubt about some of her test work. You know, maybe we need to double check some of her work. And they clarified in the report that they didn't have any doubts about the validity of her work and they didn't have any concerns about the validity of the lab results. But uh, that that was just a couple days ago. And I was aware I've seen I think it's a whole documentary that they've made about, you know, maybe he didn't do it. And maybe some of these witnesses lied and that sort of thing that this little campaign where I can't say little that this campaign has been going on for some time. I think they even had massive billboards up in the Oklahoma City area, very close to the area where some of the victims were raped and sexually terrorized. Uh, But yeah, this has been a ongoing campaign for years now. Uh, Other folks that we have not heard from at all, uh, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes. Can I be heard? Oh, Uh, no, go ahead. Go ahead, man. You go first. Oh, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Hello? 
Okay. Hey, guys. Um, hey, everyone. This is Nikki from Dallas. I'm sorry I'm late. I had some business to attend to, but um, seems like I had great timing. Um, Ken had reached out to me. I'm a part of a, um, a fairly large black gun owners and education group, and I posed the question about uh, the NRA. Um, my husband and I joined a little over a year ago, um, and due to certain things that have happened in the media with different things, we decided to go ahead and let our membership lapse. But in doing so, we have gotten numerous, numerous emails, uh, uh, correspondence via mail, uh, asking us to renew our membership. Um, it's to the point where I'm going to have to call them and ask them to please stop contacting me and sending me correspondence. Um, so I posed the question in the group, and a lot of other people are experiencing the same thing. Um, it's almost every other day. Well, I'll say maybe two or three times a week I'm getting some kind of correspondence from the NRA from Wayne, uh, I think his last name is pronounced Lapierre, to rejoin the member, the um, NRA. Um, just recently, Thursday, I think, I got a call. It was midday at work. I thought it was actually um, – my doctors calling me because it was a local number and it was the NRA calling me, asking me to rejoin the, um, the, um, to re to renew my membership. And I was nice about it because the person on the other line, it sounded to me like she was a person of color. So, um, she asked me for the month to month membership. I declined. Um, she asked me for the uh, six-month membership, and I declined. And then she proceeded with the scripted message to say, well, Wayne wants you to know, and I, re I really wish I would have recorded the conversation. Uh, I have the app that um, Emmy recommended, and, but like I say, the, the, the phone call caught me off guard. I wasn't really thinking to record the conversation. But when she said Wayne told her to call me, that's when I was like, you know what? I just hung up the phone. Um, also in the group, uh, someone mentioned that they're also offering um, credit cards via the NRA. So I just wanted to give that tidbit and see if anyone else had been experiencing that uh, with the NRA as well. And with that, I'll meet my line. Very interesting. Folks can respond as we proceed. The uh, male caller that spoke up simultaneously, thank you for being patient. Uh, did you want to go ahead? Yeah. Um, good evening, Gus. Good evening, callers, listeners. This is The Voice. Um, I wanted to comment on the interview with uh, the lady and the gentleman when they were talking about how um, President Trump, with the uh, affirmative action, is that what I'm, I think it was affirmative action about um, getting into all the colleges and universities. And um, I noticed that in the in the interview, because when I heard about it, I already knew what kind of political stunt it was. But when I listened to the interview, I found it very um, amusing in a way of how she was deferring to not say that... Um, she basically um, didn't want to just say, like, you know, it's really a dead end and it's it's not really going to go anywhere or it might expose the truth. So she just kind of, like, 
played along with it. And, I mean, there's reports out there that in affirmative action um, that white women benefit from it the most, and there's statistics behind it. So I was wondering if, like, I don't, you know, like with the exposure of those facts, they're saying that they're going after, like, particular cases that um, white people are um, discriminated against. But I'm pretty sure that when they find out the blacks that have been discriminated, they're probably just going to sweep that under the rug. So it's just real selective, um, administrative to me. That's just how I feel. And um, also, I I wanted to ask um, the listeners, like, not now, but, like, for um, workplace racism, I, I ran across somebody the other day. And I wanted to ask anybody, like, for next week on workplace racism, if anybody has ever, even the listeners that's listening, if you can um, write into Gus and ask about um, if you had any experience about equity, equity, racial equity workshop that's going on in, in the workplace. I ran across somebody, and they gave me a whole story about that. So if you guys have any um any experience about that or has, has happened at your job, you know, just write in and next week I would love to hear it because I was just blown away by it. I didn't know what – I thought this was something new, but it apparently it's not. And that's pretty much all I have. Um, thank you. Um, you're my life. Racial equity workshops on the job. Fascinating. If anyone – definitely drop an email until justice at gmail.com if you are uh, familiar Um, did we have other folks that we have not heard from at all? The number again, 641-715-3640 and the code 564-943-POUND. The female caller in Dallas. uh, Oh, there's Thomas in New York. Just quickly, the female caller in Dallas, uh, I think there is a high value. Uh, I think racists, they practice racial showcasing in a variety of different contexts. Uh, and so the NRA, I think we even heard that in some of the audio clips, they're regularly accused of being this group of racist white gun nuts. So, hey, if we can have three or four niggers in our organization, that's brilliant. I think it might be the same type of thinking in terms of uh, we can utilize a, a Sheriff Clark in the same type of manner uh, that, hey, if we can get five, 10, 12 black people to come out, be in the gun club. We can show them, take photographs with them. Great. Uh, And that we can just, we'll, in fact, we'll make that person be the spokesperson. If they want to interview or talk to, you know, representatives of the NRA in the Texas area, make sure we send her out. That'll be, what do you mean? Racist. We got black spokesperson. Shut up. Get out of here. What are you talking about? Racist. You better go, you know, find somebody else. Thomas in New York. Absolutely. And also a, a form of, um, you know, they, I'm sure that they also um, have to apply to certain um, affirmative action type rules as an organization. They have to have a certain amount of black members um, and, and non-white members to get their government, um, huge government stipends. So um, I'm sure that that's also a, a method they use to make sure that they keep a certain amount of black people um inside of that organization to keep up the image that they're, you know, we're not racist. We got X amount of black members. Um, as for the clips, um, the fraternity clip, 
you know, I when I saw a school day back in the day, I, I just um I knew I would never join one. <laughs> I just said, man, they're crazy. Um, but um, I just don't understand why why um you know blacks even would join a Greek fraternity. I just don't uh, even in black colleges. I just would like to see them. Why don't they come up with a, a Egyptian fraternity or a Moorish fraternity? Like you know, you have the same rites and rituals and things, but they're not portraying um, some victorious, some historically fictitious people called the Greeks. You know, Greece doesn't even exist until the 1920s. Um, it, it just doesn't make, you know, any sense. Uh, the clip for the police data collection, and um, that led me right into um, with, um I've been doing some researching on the, the algorithms and things as far as... Um, uh, artificial intelligence is showing show how basis you know this artificial intelligence is, and uh, one of the things that they're doing with the AI is called projective policing. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of that or not, but um, they could kind of project where a crime is going to happen. It's not quite Minority Report, but um, um, I, I can send you a video, Gus. It's a video I saw uh, maybe a year ago, but um, it, it kind of explained uh, how how um, this data that they're collecting is being used. And um, the, the police officer is um, gets a call and uh, not he doesn't get a call. I apologize. He looks at his computer, and based off of the algorithm, they, the police um, the computer predicts that. Between the hours of three and five, let's just say a burglary will take place between this, this this avenue and that avenue in this neighborhood. So the police patrol that neighborhood, and um, the guy who does the video just happens to um, be in a police car with him. So um, he um, he um, sees a black guy walking past. So the cop is like, "This is our guy." And the guy's like, you know, it's another white guy. But he's like, man, that's not, how do you know that's the guy? He just looks like the guy walking past you. He was pushing a bike and he had on a backpack. He says, oh, he doesn't have clean hair. And, you know, he, he just doesn't fit in this neighborhood. And so he said, well, let's just watch him. And the guy ended up just walking through. But based off of this data collection is how they're making these predictions. And I just think that um, – that's just one of the tactics they're using, and enter all that data into the computer, which is going to somehow um, create um, certain protocols and projections based off of that data. It, it's pretty much what they're doing. It's called predictive predictive policing, and if you um, Google that, you'll find um, a whole bunch of um, very big companies, um, including Google, um, are making um, these algorithms, this artificial intelligence that's supporting that. Um, I was on the train today, and I saw an interesting poster because it had a family. It had a, a white male. It was a black female, and she was pregnant. And um, the white male was holding a suitcase in one hand and a baby in the other. And um, it was a. It, they were like cartoon figures, um, or, or like somehow, you know, computer generated figures, but. Um, the baby that the white male was holding was way darker than the black female. So I was just thinking, you know, uh, and this billboard was um, to talk about um, Zika. Um, so I guess um, it, it was in um, 
it, it was in a bunch of different languages other than English. So I couldn't really make out what it was saying, but pretty much protect yourself when you go on vacation is what I, I got from it. But um, I just thought that that was um, very telling that they kept that out there that, you know, this, this equals genetic annihilation and it just made the baby so dark. Um, I thought that was done on purpose. And, um, you know, when I thought about it, I said, man, every every year it's like um, they have a new disease. Zika was last year. I haven't heard anything about it really this year. I don't know if you have in uh, your area or people who live in the South, but, I mean, I remember it was SARS, then it was MERS, then it was mad cows, then bird flu, then swine flu, then Ebola, and now Zika is the, the latest disease that seems somehow disappear um, after a year or two of being in existence. And I'll mute my line. Can I be heard? <clears throat> yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. I'm going to try to go fast. I have three uh, three subjects. Uh, number one, Jason Taylor, non-white, uh, I guess uh, would be classified as black male, uh, has a resemblance to uh, former President uh, Barack Obama, except for he's bald-headed. He doesn't have any hair on his head. Uh, just inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. I'll just read the paragraph, the story of Jason Taylor's marriage to the sister of his teammate, Zach Thomas, was often told during Taylor's playing career. But a day before Taylor's Hall of Fame enshrinement, it's his divorce that's making headlines. Jason Taylor and Katina Thomas Taylor divorced in 2015, and the Miami Herald reports that Katina is now suing Jason, saying he paid her $3.4 million less than the $8.67 million their divorce settlement called for. Katina claims Jason is willfully and deliberately refusing to pay, and that Jason has at least $6.9 million in assets, meaning he has the ability to pay the remaining $3.4 million. According to court documents, Jason is paying $4,000 a month in child support and is providing for health insurance for the couple's three children. Uh, as you probably have figured out, uh, this ex-wife is a white woman. Yes, <laughs> it's a white woman. Uh, there was another article on him that I remember recall years ago where he was ran off the road by a white male. Him and him and this white woman was in the car. Jason telling this white woman, uh, they were married at the time, was in the, in the car, was ran off the road by a white male. He got, the white male got out of his car. He didn't have a firearm. He got out of his car and walked up to Jason Taylor's car and was beating on the car. Now, mind you, Jason Taylor is six foot six. Uh, over 250 pounds, NFL Hall of Famer. And, and uh, uh, he had no reaction uh, at all to uh, the incident. Uh, moving on, uh, I have to uh, go to this article. Uh, hold on for a second. Uh, an article that uh, a, uh, a friend of mine associate of mine sent me uh it's on on the subject of uh american white nationalists fund european ship to catch muslims in 
the Mediterranean. And basically, uh, it was saying Europe's white nationalists are taking border control into their own hands, uh, funded, funded with money from American white supremacists and the alt-right movement, a group of a group called Generation Identity, has chartered a ship, and it plans to use to snatch Muslim immigrants out of the Mediterranean and deliver them back to the Middle East. The group says it will look for immigrants in distress, leaning on maritime law that requires any border to come to the aid of another in order to collect and redirect non-white refugees. The group also plans to monitor the activity uh, activity of non-governmental organizations whose rescue operations in the Mediterranean are characterized by generation identity as human smuggling. Generation identity calls for its efforts excuse me, generation identity calls its effort defend Europe. Defend Europe is the only way to secure the European borders and to stop the drowning in the sea, said Martin Seldner, who is an Austrian member of Generation Identity and is leading Defend Europe in promotional video about the project. Generation Identity, which began in France and is now in Austria, Austria, Germany, Italy, and the Netherlands, raised funds for the ship on an American alt-right crowdsourcing platform, winning the attention of some of America's most famous white supremacists. David Duke, infamous anti-Semite and former Ku Klux Klan leader, tweeted out a link to Defend Europe's fundraising page, the Daily Stormer, a neo-Nazi and white supremacist American information site, has published several articles supporting the idea and calling for it to be replicated on a massive scale. Defend Europe sought 80,000 to its ship. It raised more than 158,000. And it just goes on and on, you know, uh, more and more. And I thought it was a pretty interesting article. Uh, it's just, you know, uh, an example, just an example uh, on a uh, quote unquote more private. Uh, means how white people practice the global system of racism, white supremacy. In other words, I guess with their spare money and when they off time from their places of work here and over and there, they, they say, well, let's go about the means of organizing internationally on a, on a private level with, uh, you know, just basically not necessarily wealthy white people, but uh, white people who just want to involve themselves more than what they already are collectively. And uh, that's all I have to say. Uh, oh, oh, it's one more thing. Uh, uh, update on, uh, on, uh, uh, on uh, the football player, the uh, quarterback, uh, Colin, uh, Colin Kaepernick, uh, uh, as they were saying, and people probably know that he's some idea came about about him being being the quarterback for the Dolphins, but uh, it's probably that's probably not going to happen, being that he was uh, seen also with a T-shirt with Fidel Castro on it. I don't think that's a that's a uh, 
a good idea uh, uh, from the standpoint of the uh, the huge white quote unquote uh, people who speak Spanish down here uh, that that's probably not going to happen. Uh, also, in order for him to have any type of smoothness in his uh, well, that sorry about that using that metaphor, but any type of uh, functional employment. Uh, his only chance would have some sort of support from a lot of the employees that might give him a chance. And I doubt that would happen, you know, simply from the standpoint of in past history and sports, uh, Kurt Flood didn't have any support by the other major league baseball players. Uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith didn't have a whole lot of support, uh, either. Uh, and then again, I'm also not at the same time, not blaming those non-white black people either because of the means that I know that the white supremacists who controls entertainment and sports can harm them just as bad as they are harming this, uh, young fella. And, uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you. May, may I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, hello to just the host and to all the other callers and listeners. Um, just on a couple of things. Um, the story about the CRISPR and the story about the birth control. And was there another story about a health health? Henrietta Lacks Day. It will. Uh, yeah. Um... It was something because I remember I had three stories. The first time I didn't write these things out. It was three things I wanted to connect. But anyway, I, let me just go ahead. I guess I can use the story the the clip about the gun you know and i think the thing like with the CRISPR is and at this point in time you know, like they are you know want to take out the gene that's causing the problem to uh really create perfect people that that's really what it sounds like to me and I, I this kind of reminds me of the story that you did on one of your shows sometime back about the white woman who grew up in hawaii and she was like the weirdo tall thin Hell, and she's surrounded by all these brown people, and and she is the one, if I'm not mistaken, who discovered this CRISPR. But it just seemed like to me that you know this is more of the creation of trying to create perfect people, and you know for the most part, perfect white people. And I think the thing is too, because it's like then when you get to the birth control, I now uh, the last, uh, I think the last birth control that I heard that there may have been the issue with was the. Um, I think it was Depo Provera, which was uh, probably been over 10 years. And um, one reason why I remember that, because I had a member of my family who was using that. And it was just really something because she kind of like blew up like a balloon. And, you know, the thing was like, oh, my God, you need to get that out of you. But um, I know Depo Provera, and it was another birth control. So it would be, you know, something that's kind of under the skin. But this one, it kind of get me because she said that, just many things that, you know, she said about this birth control device. I think something about the materials that was used and, you know, one of them being toxic. But I think the big thing that stood out to me was this birth control was supposed to be able to produce scar tissue, I guess, in the fallopian tubes to keep, you know, to keep the egg and the sperm from connecting. But I thought about it, I said, but, you know, if, after, if, if it, let's just say, the, let's say it works right. Let's say it works right. 
then when the woman decides that well, she doesn't want this anymore and say, maybe I'm ready to have children, think about it. Now, she won't be able to have children because her fallopian tubes are full of scar tissue. And then that, that becomes another problem right there. And, and I don't know why, as I was listening to that story, that I'm like, I just have the silly that the mass number of women with this birth control is probably black women. So, you know, it's just like you, you got this with, with the CRISPR. I, I don't see them, you know, trying to take anything from black people, you know. I just see that something for them. Even though I remember the story, even the woman that came up with the idea of this thing. And then, you know, here's a birth control that black, that I, well, I can't say black one, but I just have this, I don't know why I have this sneaking suspicious, suspicion that probably the majority of uh, women that have this, are black women, and not to mention, too, the use of toxic materials. I mean, we have a wealth of history, and we know what these people can do and have done to us. And then I think with the guns, it, it just really, uh, even the, 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 the woman who conducted the uh, interview, uh, I think she something says, oh, my God, you know, black people get killed with guns. I mean, do you really think you guys should have more guns? You know, I'm thinking I'm listening to this. It's just like, you know, First thing, black people are not killing ourselves no more than white people or any other people because uh, you kill, unfortunately, the crime is committed where you live where you live at. I'm not saying that we have a problem, but the way I look at it, just going by stats, our problem is probably no worse than anybody else. Worse than some, but particularly we got to compare ourselves to white people, is not worse than theirs. We're just about equal. But um, it's just something about it, and, and somebody earlier spoke that, you know, this idea of, um, you know, black people defending ourselves, you know, and, uh, you know, that, that just sets, uh, that sets white people off. You know, we have, I mean, I can remember um, listening to, I think, like within one of the last shows that Dr. Wilson was actually on your program. And she said something about guns. She she gave her age. She said she was, you know, so many years old. She says, I don't have any friends that I know that own guns. Because, you know, as black people, not that they're not guns in our community, and, you know, but we just tend to not, and, and that probably did, still did come. And I know, like, you had the book, Robert Williams, No Guns for Negroes, because we know it's, that's, there's a whole lot to that. But it was just interesting, the whole tone of that. And I will say the young lady who uh, she interviewed, you know, conducted herself very well and, you know, answered her problem, her, her questions and everything. But, um, you know, it was just interesting, the tone. You know, it said, oh, my God, you you people really shouldn't have guns. Not that you're concerned about us shooting ourselves, you know, because the black-on-black crime thing is always a distraction or a deflection. But, you know, just that really, why are you concerned? It's on the kind of like, well, why are you all concerned about um protecting yourself, you know, with all that goes on in this society. But I just thought those those programs that I remember, I don't even remember that, the double, I think it was another one you did about him, because I can't remember about Henrietta Lex. But it was just like, to me, to be tied together and how, you know, some people trying to produce, has produced something that where they're trying to get perfect people. You know, you have a birth control out here, which, and I hate to say it, this is just me, a suspicion that there's probably black women get that that if it, it if it works properly, once that birth control is moved, you got another problem now. And then the guns, where it's just almost like, you guys really, it almost like, you know, she said, you, you all should really worry about that. You know, I guess, I guess the other thing would be, you can call the police, but, you know, I, I just, I just, 
you know, uh, notice, you know, noted that those three uh, tonight. But anyway, I'll meet myself. It's a great show. I'll meet myself. Thank you. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all. Uh, there are callers that we've not heard from at all. Did we nab everybody? Got all the folks who got a hand up? Grand. If folks had additional comments they wanted to get in, that's fine. I did also want to make sure that I included uh, Puff. She's called in numerous times down through the years. Uh, I think it was about a year ago. We were doing one of our compensatory call-ins, and uh, Michelle Alexander, she wrote the new Jim Crow. Uh, her, her work was referenced. It might have even been an interview that she conducted. And I said that she does have a white parent. I think that's significant. It doesn't mean that I don't listen to what she has to say or disregard her work. Same way that I think it's significant that Frantz Fanon married a white person. At any rate, uh, Puff, she asked, you know, why is that significant that uh, Michelle Alexander or any other non-white person? uh, Why is it significant if they have a white parent? I went for bubble tea for the first time in my life uh, with past couple days and we were there. It was a group of us, uh, like four or five of us. So we're there, all non-white people, thank God. We're all present, chatting, constructive dialogue. And one of the folks uh, present, non-white male, uh, he was saying that his parents had a house in the Central District, Seattle. Uh, that's the area where used to be the black area, but it's been, quote unquote, gentrified. They're booting black people out and have been for a good 15 years or so. He said that his parents uh, own a second generation house in the Central District and there he and his siblings, they are going to try to keep the house. Uh, they're going to see if they can take it over. And then that way they'll uh, he'll be a part owner in a third generation Central District house. Um, we we're like, oh, man, that's great. You know, keeping property. That's awesome. And I did not say a word. I was enjoying my bubble tea. Other non-white person present said, oh, yeah, that is great. Uh, that they're keeping property. And he waited for a moment. He turned and he said, it probably is significant that he has a white parent. <laughs> Talking about the person who uh, this was their plan with their siblings to keep this property. Now, this person, clearly non-white, no way they could pass or what have you, but they do happen to have one white parent, one non-white parent, and someone else, not Gus, thought it was significant that one of the people who's holding on the property in the central district, formerly the black area of Seattle, has a white parent. I didn't say a word, but in my head, I did agree. That probably is significant as well. Did other folks have commentary they wanted to share? Or the person, uh, wait a minute, make sure we get everybody who dialed in. Person uh, calling in, I guess you're on the vote line. Did you have commentary? Um. Yes, this is uh, HB. Mm-hmm. Uh, I victimized. Uh, greetings to Gus and all the listeners and callers. Um, I had a question. Um, and my question was, what, there's there's someone that I know that I've known for like around 20 years, and I wanted to ask her as well as someone else that I know um, some questions to, I guess, I guess try to detect whether or not they're racist. And so I was calling for, you know, suggestions of what questions I could possibly ask. What do I? Can I hear it? 
Take Dr. Wells. What do white people talk about when they're no, you're talking to a white person. If you know, the question is, uh, they might be racist. I would take Dr. Wellsing's. What do white people talk about when there are no white people around? I think that's always a good one to kind of see what they're willing to share. Uh, did other folks, uh, well, I guess before we make any assumptions, these are white people that you're questioning. Yes. And I, I don't know if the question I just asked, is that allowed on this, on this particular, uh, program like the compensatory like was that okay that's acceptable uh did other okay. people have uh possible questions she can ask these are whites that she wants to question that apparently she's known for some years she wants to ask some some questions other questions you would recommend can i be heard yes sir all right yes uh this is uh ken Steele, and um still in chino hills just wanted to uh say to that question um, you know, a simple question to see if they're racist um, uh, would be, are you white? And if they say yes, then it's a safe assumption that, uh, that they could uh, potentially and are most likely a racist. Um, also, uh, just uh, an aside, um, something that I've noticed uh, going on this week um, is that there seems to be um, uh, uh, an even furthering of this uh, concerted effort to push anti-sexual uh, uh, behavior onto um, uh, victims of racism. I think that there's a concerted effort that's being uh, made uh, by uh, victims of racism uh, who classify themselves as transgender um, to be, I guess, accepted as um, biological females and have uh, sex with them to be perceived as normal sex, and they do not have any sort of requirement to um, report that they are, in fact, a transgendered person. And uh, this at, is uh, being pushed on uh, the black community or um, on victims of racism, white supremacy, uh, at the same time that the government is actively um, pushing uh, victim, uh, pushing uh, transgenders out of the military and making it very clear that uh, that. Uh, so-called gender identity and sexual orientation are not uh, covered under the, I believe it is the Title VIII statute, or it could be the Title VII statute of the Civil Rights Act. So, you know, this is something that I think uh, Neely Fuller has um, uh, has indicated that uh, um, these uh, racist white supremacists will be doing. Um, they are uh, 30 seconds. I think that, yeah, I think that they are attempting to um, just kind of um, amongst themselves uh, reverse any sort of uh, um, LGBTism uh, trends that they have pushed. And then subsequently, they're trying to accelerate or um, push um, the uh, LGBT acceptance uh, efforts that they're trying to push amongst victims of racism. And I'll mute my line. Huh. Uh, yeah. Gus, can I add a quick detail? Sure. 
um, uh, one of them, the one I've known for 20 years, she is a, a cowbell. So she she's in a relationship with a uh, with a black male and has a child by him. And before that, she was married for a number of years. I forget how many, five or more. Uh, to another black male, and she is uh, primarily attracted to them. So I don't know if that um, would be relevant to whatever suggestions people may ask, may give for questions as well. Well, let me ask a question. Are you asking because <laughs> you yourself are like trying to decide, like you've not reached a conclusion about whether or not these individuals classified as white are racist? Yeah, I I, I haven't. Uh... I, I suspect that, that that is the case, um, and I am trying to decide, um, I'm trying to, I guess, distance myself from them more, um, and so that's why I want, you know, the, 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 these suggestions, because that, that's, that's what I'm, I'm trying to do. I'm trying to distance myself from them, and I'm, I'm trying to avoid saying, you know, that, that they're my friends because I know that that's a, like an oxymoron, I think is what you would call it. But that's, that's really the situation. Mm. I mean, just keep, as they say, keeping it real. Are they your friends? I mean, if you've known one for 20 years, like, oof, this sounds like someone who might have been referenced a time or eight as a friend. Yes. Oh, okay. That just being honest, I think that's important. Um, it's been my experience because I too had white friends that that really, uh, for me, it really impaired my ability to just be honest with myself um, about, you know, what they were doing. Cause I mean, if anybody else, if it was a white person that I didn't have any sort of relationship or emotional connection to they, them having sexual intercourse with a non-white person, there would be nothing to discuss. That's an act of racism. Like it's, it's just irrelevant. That just is. So you're not even a suspect that just, that is. And I mean, really, you could even move that to the side. It would just be, what does it mean to be white? Really? That gets down to the essence of, we really don't have to get into any of the details. But as I said, I've been in that position. Uh, I know for me, it just, it was really, really hard for me to just be truthful uh, with myself because my emotions would be there. I didn't want to upset that white person. And I, I didn't even have white pals that I had hung out with or been friends for 20 years. So that would, I imagine making it even make it even more difficult. Um, I do know for myself and others that if you're really serious, like if you're saying, Hey, I want to get distance from them so that I can maybe reassess th this relationship 20 years or however long it's been, uh, just consistently talking with them about racism. I've heard that from a number of folks down through the years that that can do wonders uh, in terms of just making it very clear, very explicit what this person is about. If they are classified as white, what that means, just making that a regular part of you all's relationship that we are going to talk about racism. And then you can evaluate what they have to say. Do you all talk about racism, white supremacy regularly? Yes. Um, I would say more recently, even more. And I've asked about, I've asked some questions. I did ask, you know, what, like what, uh, do, do they, what do they talk about when we're not around and what type, who, who, why, which, which groups do they talk about the most and what are the things that they say? And, you know, the one that I've known for 20 years, I've asked her those questions and, uh, you know, she's told me some stuff and, you know, things like that. So. 
it's been my, if you ask enough questions and you keep thinking about it, if you're able to be honest, if you ask enough questions, I think uh, most people have seen that that alone, the white people will start wanting distance from you. If you keep asking enough questions and you're paying attention to make sure that they answer your question correctly, that sort of thing, that distance you will gain. Uh, did other folks have, I guess, questions you could ask in this potential? Yes, sir. <laughs> Can I be heard? We'll get retired firefighter yeah. first. Uh, first and foremost, uh, uh, logically speaking, you are, as a victim of racist white supremacy, you are to assume that every white person that you come in contact with, uh, that can practice racist white supremacy, meaning nothing wrong with their, their eyes and nose and physical features and they are functioning uh, that they are probably are practicing racism. Uh, it reminds me of a, uh, a a person that would go around Dade County Public Schools back when I was in elementary school and teach us about the dangers of snakes. Down here in South Florida, you know, snakes, especially during the 60s, were still prevalent because, you know, areas wasn't developed as much as they are now, uh, even though they still are around. But uh, he mentioned that you're not a snake expert, so assume that every snake that you run into, that you encounter, is deadly, it is poisonous. And I would say the same thing about white people. And I would make that suggestion to any non-white person, because you're not asking experts on the subject. So to, but we are victims on the subject, and the most logical thing that I would say is to assume that all white people are racist. Uh, Mr. Fuller and his, uh, his uh, updated uh, counter-racist code concept uh, uh, revised edition uh, on page 217, I believe it starts on 217, he has about, it may be about 60 or 70 questions <laughs> that you can ask white people. <laughs> and, and as Gus has stated, you probably get through by half of them and and the white person would would convince you themselves because they would uh very uh quickly uh uh make uh make a way away from you uh verbally as well as physical contact because they are realizing that you are on to having a more developed understanding of the system of racist white supremacy and that, those are just my suggestions. Was there a male caller? Yes, sir. Black male in Texas. Uh, one question that I have found gets slices through a lot of this is ask them what they think about reparations. Because what you will find is, especially currently now, uh, this, this uh, intersectionality, which is another form of propaganda, I believe, um, is has been making this conversation about uh, oppressed people of color in vogue. But something that I never forget is that racism, white supremacy is primarily anti-black. So what you'll find is you'll find white people who have so-called friends of people of color, a lot of Asian, a lot of Indian, East Indian, a lot of other non-brown individuals that they'll consider friends, but none of um, those 
who are descendants of chattel slavery, because that is the the secret um, that they like to keep hidden. It's interesting if you can you should you can also ask them what they think about uh, the Holocaust and the reparations for that, and they'll most likely probably support that. What's very interesting is that uh, the descendants of the Holocaust they got their whole they got an entire country out of that, and that country is actually being supported by taxpayer dollars in monies from this government. Chattel slavery holocaust was millions of times worse. Ask them what they think about reparations. And once you start seeing them backpedal, you'll see, you'll see where they're at. Another thing you can do is you can just watch their behavior. So once they start getting around black people, or if you invite them to black functions that are mostly primarily black, and you see that discomfort level come in, you, you'll see what you're dealing with because um, what a lot of racists like, they like the option to be able to leave. That's what makes them comfortable. See, if you are black in the United States of America, you have to understand that you do not have the option to leave. You have something that was built for you. You get to stay in that corner. And then if you don't like it, you just have to figure it out. White people all have always had the option to leave or to amend or to change for their comfort level. I've always said that uh, the first entitlement program in this country has been white people's feelings, bottom line. So you just start watching their behavior. Um, if you know how to pick up on social cues and things that make them feel uncomfortable, yeah, you'll, you'll see it. You might not even have to get to the questions. You just watch. And then I'll meet my line. Just uh encouraging folks being mindful of the metaphor staying in our corner metaphor sounds like to me uh do we have any other suggestions for questions uh to ask any other suggestions before we move on yeah, can I be heard? you're a little low if you could speak up please uh can i, can I be heard? You can yes, hear sir. Me now? yes sir oh, okay uh just a voice again um three three things that i, I would ask is um is one um do you think that we talk about do you think that black people talk about race too much is race like an overwhelming issue and if they and they if they say like yeah everything is just about race and I'm tired I'm sick and tired of just everything being about race when it's not then to me that's a clear indication two is um ask them if like um, the victims of racism, uh, well, you know, black, um, if you feel like the ones that do bring up racism all the time, should they just get up and go to another country and just not deal with America anymore? And if they say, yeah, I feel like they should, you know, just go somewhere else if you feel like America is not for you, then that's another indication. And third, if You've been with that person, like you're friends with them for over 10, 20 years. Um, ask them what is, the, what is the worst argument they ever had with their spouse because a lot of times when they deal with their spouse, that's when their true racist viewpoints come out. And if she tells you like any indication of any racial words being slipped up in that argument, then that should be like your final you know, indication. Uh, that's just about what I have. Hopefully that's useful. Hmm. 
any other questions they would ask I'm sure folks will be eager for the update down the road uh, maybe a month or so after you've been able to ask some more questions or have some more dialogue uh, to report back how things have evolved were there any other suggested questions yes sir have you heard yes sir all right uh, thank you very much Gus uh, I was thinking of uh, a question well I don't know if this may be a question but I know you brought it up in the past about racist jokes um, like could that like I think that could be a question that the uh, lady could ask um, for instance uh, do you know of any white people in your presence uh, that have used racist jokes like that could be a, a good question um, and you could ask when the joke was made if there was one did you laugh and if they say yes uh, you can ask, do you think that white person is racist? And if they say yes again, then you can ask another saying, well, if you think that white person is racist, what would make you different from them if you laughed at the joke? So, yeah, that that would be something that I would ask. Always great to ask about the racist jokes. Uh, most white people have heard eight, 12, few dozen uh, of those by the time they're eight years old. Any other recommended questions? I got a quick question. Um, just uh, out of curiosity, uh, you've been, uh, I guess, a friend with this uh, second racist for uh, 20 years. I'm just curious, um, uh, how have how have you been friends with them that long and not been able to come to a conclusion of your own through your own observations? Just out of curiosity. Um, I would say because up until I started seeing black men be murdered on videotape by enforcement officials, I really trusted white people. And I didn't suspect them as racist. I was caught up in this refinement that we now have where, you know, they're not calling you nigger and, and hanging you from trees. Now they're just, you know, shooting you in the back or pinning you down and shooting you and, and saying they feared for their lives. So I just didn't really suspect, but I really started looking more and more um, I mean, I knew that racism exists, but I didn't really suspect uh, white people like in general. And when I started to see that, I started to see more and more. And then when I started listening to the cows, um, I can't even say when that was. It wasn't that long ago that I started listening to the cows. That's when I really just started getting um, really suspicious and started seeing patterns with different white guests that were on and things of that nature. So I just, ne it never really occurred to me to be suspicious about them until very recently. Very common, very common. Uh, update us, let us know as things progress, you're able to ask a few more uh, questions and what have you. Uh, that I'm sure folks would appreciate. And we've had some other people on as well who, I mean, it is a process. We are all victims, all still learning. Other people who had, quote-unquote, white friends, and they 
went through their uh, purging of their white friends and, and how they dealt with that. <laughs> so definitely let us know uh, the update, how that progresses. Um, you can invite them to call in if you, you know, are listening to the program and they catch you listening. Tell them to feel free to dial in. Uh, Thomas in New York, did you did we uh, miss you? Did you have commentary that you were going to get in? Just making sure I'm not missing folks since we are winding down. Maybe not. I don't know if he's moving towards the plantation or he's not able to speak presently. Thomas in New York, did you have commentary or are you just listening? I'm just trying to check in before we get too close to the end. I'll check in again before we get ready to wrap things up. And general reminder for listeners, uh, we have a little less than 20 minutes left in the broadcast. So please do not wait till the last moment. If you think you have something that you would like to share, the number is 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND. Uh, this segment, I did want to make sure I got in as well when they were talking, the early clip, uh, clip where they were talking about Angelina Jolie uh, and her abusing these non-white children uh, for this movie that they were doing. When the Young Turks in that segment, when uh, one of the anchors, she mentioned that the same, I guess, <laughs> way that they were teasing these children uh, to say, oh, think about this money and taking it and then seeing how they would respond. They were saying that it reminded them of, uh, they said, I think Matt, Damon or or whatever they messed the name up it was Matt Dillon I believe is who they were referencing they were talking about the movie Crash uh, because I just found this information out like within the last year I think it was last summer uh, Thandi Newton's character when she's uh, sexually uh, terrorized by the race soldier Matt Dillon's character in the film Crash she didn't know that that was going to happen I didn't find all this about this this is online where she talked about it uh, where she did interviews after the film that's what they were talking about in the comparison it's just they uh, messed the name up it's Matt Dillon who they were referencing and uh, the Young Turks in the other segment where they were talking about that enforcement official who got caught with that meme about drowning your child. Number one, we had Jacqueline Battalora on the program. Uh, she's a repeat guest, but we had her on the first time, I think days after I got back from the white privilege conference in Wisconsin, that was right around the same time that Dr. Eddie Moore Jr. threatened to punch Gus T in the nose and called me brother. But she said that she conducts an experiment with her college students annually, seeing, telling them to go home and tell their parents that, Oh, yeah, I met, you know, this swell guy at school this past semester. He happens to be a Negro. And, you know, it's it's great. He's my new boyfriend. And she said that uh, <laughs> invariably, particularly with white females, their parents flipped out. It was the exact same type of response that that seems to be a solid aspect of white code, particularly white daughters. You are not you are not supposed to be doing any serious messing around with any negro boys major racist code but that was one but then they said that this officer who did this who got caught with this meme saying yeah i would drown my child if they were interested in a black boy he got to resign like whoa 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 how is it that this person's uh i guess work security or what have you is being protect, uh, protected where we won't fire him so he won't have that termination on his record we'll go ahead and let him resign again mr fuller he said whites race soldiers they are not fired. They are transferred. And it wouldn't surprise me in an incident like this because it wasn't a shooting. You don't have dash cam footage. I haven't seen this officer's picture uh, flying around the web. I'm sure it is there. Uh, it would not surprise me a year, two years, even four years 
ends up working for another police department, maybe five, ten miles down the road. That sort of thing has happened a lot. Timothy Lohman. Uh, were there other folks who had commentary they wanted to make sure they got in? We have about 15 minutes left. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, I just wanted to real quick talk about the, um, you know, uh, it's it's kind of depressing, you know, when as, as victims of racism that we are, everybody, uh, you know, I, I love when you play the clip, Gus, of um, when Obama says, you know, <laughs> you know, it seems like we're going in the right direction uh, when I talk to Sasha, Milana, <laughs> because it's, Everything he's saying is the total opposite. We're going backwards. And Missouri just um, issued, the NWACP just issued a travel ban in Missouri stating that blacks have to be cautious about traveling through that state. And I'm in my head and I'm like, hold on, so the Constitution, it just doesn't exist when it comes to us because how do you tell citizens, well, you know, quote-unquote citizens of this land, how do you tell them that only a specific group has to be um, watch themselves in order to go through a certain state? And it's it's just it's it's like really really it's really depressing. It's really depressing. And it's and for it to just go and nobody's fighting against it is it's it's sad. It's sad. But I just wanted to bring that up because I don't know if anybody else heard about that. But um, and I'll just mute my line. I think it's a travel uh, adva- uh, advisory, not a ban, uh, if I understand correctly, that they yeah, think exactly. there are racial, racial dangers, uh, not a ban exactly, but just words are important. Other folks have commentary that they uh, wanted to share? You know, um, it's interesting that uh, Barack Obama was uh, brought up um, just now and his uh, statement regarding um, the state of uh, relations between um, uh, whites and uh, their non-white victims and uh, referencing his children as a a reference point. I believe um, earlier today, um, video has been sent and or released by um, TMZ depicting um, Malia Obama at um, Lollapalooza, which is taking place in Chicago. Um, and she appears to be um, under the influence of, uh, of some sort of drug. I suspect that she's on Molly's in that video. And, um, and it's interesting that, um, she, that Barack uh, or President Obama references that uh, the relationship is getting better but because um, you know, this video had to have been taken by her friends. And this isn't the first time um, that uh, she is depicted in this sort of way at the same exact festival, no less. And um, and there's so many pictures. There's just a preponderance of pictures of uh, Malia Obama in very compromised positions. Um, and these photos are and these videos are all being taken by um, people that I suspect are practicing racism that she's uh um, uh, affording herself to and surrounding herself with. Um, 
uh, very, very sad situation. But uh, I, again, I think it's a noteworthy um, and it's worth mentioning, especially in the context of that um, clip. Any other comments, folks wanted to make sure they get in in the last few minutes before we get ready to wrap things up? Final comments? Yes, can I be heard? Heard two folks. I guess we'll go ahead. Uh, The caller who asked if you could be heard. Yes, ma'am, we can hear you. You can go first. Okay, just really quick. I just wanted to thank everybody for the uh, suggestions. I think those were incredible uh, questions. And um, you, Gus, and and even you, uh, Ken Steele, you guys have helped me out a a lot over these months that I've been uh, listening to to, uh, resolve a lot of um, confusion that I've had. But I just wanted to quickly ask you, Gus, all of a sudden um, T-Mobile is charging me for this call, one cent per minute, and they weren't before, and they had some type of excuse, something about these types of numbers. Um, they're outside of the calling area, and now they're charging for whatever reason. And so I just wanted to ask if you knew of a way that I could call for free, like is Skype still an option? If so, how do I go about that, or just if you knew? Um, I know some other people had mentioned that, other callers, and I recommended either using the app uh, there should be a free app that you can download uh, with free HD. Uh, you can download that. It does work for free. I think other people have used it even outside the States and they said it did work for free. Uh, and you can uh, ask questions the same way that you're uh, participating now. Uh, I know that will work. Uh, the Skype thing, they do not have a Skype option anymore. I don't think on the upgrade uh, that they did to the free HD line. I will double check on that just to make sure, but I think they did remove the Skype option, but I know the the free HD download does work. If you uh, drop me an email, uh, I can make sure that you have the link and you can try it out to make sure that it works, but I've given out, that out to uh, several uh, listeners who had that same issue and they said it worked fine. They were able to use it and they were able to call in and participate the whole nine and they were not incurring those fees when they did so. I had one more quick question. Can I ask? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember that you asked, I believe, uh, Crystal Tacky Tyler or whatever her <laughs> name is, <laughs> and you you were asking her about a phone and and things of that nature. And um, and so I was I wanted to know if there's any way that we um, as as beneficiaries of this incredible program, if we could help you in any kind of way, like we did with with like or like they did, because I didn't at the time, I wasn't around, but with the, you know, the MacBook Pro thing, is there any way that we could help you? Or do you have a phone already, or? Uh, With the phone thing, I mean, I'm sure there probably is, but that's just my little side project, because I got a white person to uh, pay for the phone and the plan before, so my goal is to do that again, just because I assume that whites are probably listening to my phone calls, uh, just from what I've seen from studying Cointel profiles and black people that uh, did not have a whole lot of resources because uh, I feel like I don't have a whole lot of resources or anything and they were spying on them. So I feel like they're probably doing the same thing. So I feel like if they're going to listen in, then they should pay for the bill. So that's just my side project. I'm <laughs> much obliged for the uh, inquiry, but I, I think I could probably get a white person to take care of that. Uh, if folks want to support, that's grand. Uh, my wish list is uh, at amazon.com and folks can invest, but yeah, I'm, I'm, very, very confident that I will get another white person to get the phone and the plan again. Okay. Tell me why. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Happy her. 
Yes, ma'am. Okay, just a quick thing. Um, I mentioned, I mentioned, you mentioned something about what Prince Fanon and his white wife. And, um, um, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying, I, I also question those things, too. And I know that if you go back and you look at history, and I'm talking about, I'm not talking about way back, I'm talking about pretty modern history, you know, 60s and 70s, you find quite a few or, you know, of what I call our, uh, a, what I call leaders, I'm going to say heavy hippies, but leaders tend to be, you know, black men who have had white wives. And I, the other day, I was thinking about this for well, one day last week. I was thinking about this, and I was just saying that um, it just seems to me that it's something about we just don't, I may be wrong in this, I hope I am, understand the dynamic then of marriage. Because if you're a black man, and, and in this case, I'm going to say black men, because in terms of leadership, I don't see a, a black woman being in leadership where she can make moves. They got a white husband. I don't know, you know, who Kamala Harris, you know, things go the way they try to go. She may be the one, but, you know, and she's an Indian Jamaican, but, you know, she got a white husband. But um, I just tell with black men, and, you know, you're in positions like Nakuma, who I think, you know, was the head of a, a country in Africa, and it's like you have this white wife. And I was just thinking because, you know, when you're married to someone, you are bouncing ideas and stuff off on each other. And I, 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 one day I was sitting here thinking, I said, just imagine the stuff that may have died at, say, pillow talk, if you will, because a, a black husband saying to his white wife, oh, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and she's saying, well, no, you might not want to try that, blah-blah-blah-blah-blah-blah-blah-blah-blah. And so things that... um a black male or a black man in a leadership position may want to have tried, but, you know, that ideal of things may have never come to the light of day because they had a white wife who basically killed that idea in some things that she may have said. So when I look at, like you said, people like Francis and some of these other ones, it does make me wonder, um, you know, how, how did you get with a white woman, um, <coughs> excuse me, how did you get with a white woman considering, uh, you know, who you are and, and what you're doing? And I even questioned, um, and my, this, you know, I might be in the field with this, but I mean, I even questioned, is it even possible that these women could even be a part of a plan? I mean, we know COINTELPRO, we know the CIA, we know stuff that, you know, we have a wealth of history of, the, you know, what the CIA can do, what the CIA has, does, has have done. And sometimes it is that, you know, some white woman is chosen to go along with a plan, you know. And, you know, the setup is what you, you you know, you'll meet here, what have you. And, you know, I know how it is with you. Cause I, and I know it sounds crazy because the, the man would also have to be, you know, to want to marry this woman or be with this woman. But <laughs> giving stuff out things are, you never know. But I mean, I'm I'm just curious too, you know, as to say it's like, mm, I mean, I know he's he's dead, and I mean, I don't know if there's any writing where somebody may look at that, you know, in his life and and wonder how that was. But I mean, I know if I, I was thinking, I think Richard Wright was married to a white woman, so it, it's almost uh, really uh, rather interesting um, when you think about it. And I, you know, I just wanted to comment with that. So I'll meet myself. Thank you. France Fanon. 
picking that up next Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, that's actually third study session next Friday on the wretched of the earth. Last five minutes. Any final comments folks need to get in? Yes. Uh, quickly on uh, Jason Taylor in his Hall of Fame speech that I saw uh, hours before the program. Uh, he recognized his mother. Uh, who was in the audience. He said he didn't know who his father was. Now, his mother is a white woman. <laughs> and I'm, I was just thinking to myself, well, he may not have known who his father was, but I guarantee you she knew who who, who his father was. Unfortunately, she didn't uh, uh, say anything about uh, his father to him uh, when he was a child. Uh, I just noticed that, you know, how they have these, these hall of fame speeches and they're so long and, uh, in, in their speeching and they're talking. And, uh, that, that was one of the things that came up in this speech. Thank you. Area eight, everyone's favorite area of people activity. Uh, any, any other commentary folks want to make sure they got in before we get ready to wrap things up. Anything else? Everybody satisfied? Got in their, their commentary. I don't know what the other medical portion was. Our caller in Ohio, uh, Henry, I don't know if it was related to Henrietta Lacks, but they have Henrietta Lacks Day uh, in Maryland now, August 1st. Uh, I don't know if they are, there's any compensation that comes with Henrietta Lacks Day or, <coughs> excuse me, or if that's just a one day a year we, you know, have Watermelon Day on the plantation in name and move on. Metaphor, my apologies. Uh, with that, there was one other thing, uh, Amphistar Pharmaceuticals. It's a little under 16. That is one of the stocks that we've been following, came up on the compensatory call-in. They make Narcan. It's one of the opioid uh, treatment drugs that they've been talking about a lot. People are, uh, were looking at investing, Gusty included. Uh, it was about 18, about 18 and a half. Um, we first took notice of it. It's right at about a hair under 16 uh, right now, $16. It's dropped about 250 uh, since we kind of started tracking it last month. Uh, but lots of folks uh, still view it as something to purchase. I will certainly continue to track. If anything, it might just be a little bit cheaper to purchase for right now. If you want to hold on to it for a while and think it might do well, uh, feel free to drop an email until justice at gmail.com. If you have questions, suggestions, we're here on Tuesday. Joseph Gibson, he's been on the program many times down through the years. Uh, we talked about his book, uh, Trapped in Rainbows. Uh, we talked about his book, uh, The Monsters we make. Uh, most recently, he was on the program talking about his theory that racism, white supremacy, because of the lies and racist uh, concepts, false concepts that we're given and daily abuse that we suffer from, that a lot of black people end up having uh, brain damage, meaning that just because of those false concepts, we are not correctly processing the world in which we live. Uh, it really ends up devastating our thinking, critical thinking and brain computers. Uh, that was one of his more recent books. Uh, his latest text, uh, it talks about his observations. He's an educator in addition to all of the prolific writing. It talks about his observations that many people, educators, parents, even black parents and black educators, uh, because of white supremacy, we've been trained to see black children and think they cannot learn. They cannot be brilliant. These are not young doctors and scientists and scholars uh, that if they are not showing brilliance 
immediately. Like as soon as they hit, you know, kindergarten or whatever it is, if those A's are not on every single test quiz, whatever they take immediately, oh man, you're just going to be another, you know, ignorant little black child. Uh, And he says that these can be really crippling attitudes that we have uh, when viewing and working with black children. Uh, He even gives out suggestions for how we can work against that. Uh, He'll be with us on Tuesday to talk about his new book. Uh, And I think we should be able to use that to make sure that I get that broadcast together with black male educators to talk about their experience as well. But Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, we'll be here. Uh, Again, drop an email if you have questions or thoughts. Uh, As summer winds down, I will still encourage sobriety would be best as long as we are in a system of racism, white supremacy. You can get out and frolic, enjoy the sun, have a great time, hit the beach. I'm hoping I can get there too, but I think doing all that sober would be best. There's lots of evidence that race soldiers like Daniel Holtzclaw And many others have terrorized, abused lots of black people and had an easier time doing so because of alcohol, tobacco, different poisons, whatever it is. Uh, I think it would behoove all victims of white supremacy. Let's be sober. Make sure our brain computers are operating at maximum efficiency so that we can crank out solutions to the problem. Racist man, racist woman, racist child. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. (laughs)